This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, these have been interesting times, haven't they? You've got the transfer portal with more than 500 current scholarship athletes in college football in the portal, including Cam Ward, quarterback Washington State, Aiden Childs, quarterback Oregon State, Dylan Gabriel at Oklahoma in the portal and apparently making a visit to the University of Oregon. Really different times, right? And there's been some adjustment. I got to admit to you, I've had to make an adjustment, a mental adjustment, because the bowl season used to feel like the postseason. Now it feels like the offseason, except for the four teams that are playing in the college football playoff. And maybe the expansion of the playoff to 12 teams will change that next year. Maybe it'll feel more like a postseason, but it feels like it's a postseason for Washington and Texas and fans of Alabama and fans of Michigan. But when you have Oregon playing Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl and Oregon State going to a Sun Bowl and a lot of questions about, you know, who's going to be the defensive coordinator at Oregon State, who will play quarterback at Oregon State, hell, who will play quarterback at Oregon next year? Charlie Baker, the president of the NCAA, coming out and saying, you know, how about, how about, a, uh, how about a new division of college football? where they can pay the players and programs that can make a financial commitment of $30,000 per player can play in this division. And all of a sudden, we start to see the potential splintering of college football away from the what we used to know and what we used to love. And frankly, what we used to know and love is probably dead and gone, whether you want to admit it or not, as the Pac-12 Conference has played its final regular season already. I am in a weird position because I, for years, have supported athletes and their right to capitalize on their name and their image and their likeness. We don't um, prohibit a biology major from going out and getting employment and taking an internship and creating a relationship in their field and networking. And we don't, we don't put NCAA rules on all that and say, oh, no, 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 you've lost your college eligibility because uh, you took a part-time job while you were in school. No, you don't do that. In fact, I have a college kid in our own household who's got a job. And, and I am, uh, I'm left looking at her, and she's networking, and she's uh, getting to know people and thinking about her career and what comes after college. She's a junior now. And it's uh, weird to me to try to tell a college kid, hey, you shouldn't be able to capitalize on the marketplace because frankly if you really want to think about it my entire livelihood 
depends on the marketplace. It really does. Like I, you know, the market doesn't lie, right? Uh, I and I and I do that every time my contract in radio comes up for nego- negotiation or renegotiation. It's all market based, and um, and and my writing endeavor. It it's uh, it's incumbent upon people who say, hey, I have to read Kanzano. I want to read Kanzano. Hey, I'm in. I'm with you. You've launched your own thing. I'm going with you. And I'm going to read what you have to say on a daily basis. And so that is all market-driven. So I'm not going to sit here and say to college kids, hey, you shouldn't be able to jump in the portal and capitalize on your market value as a quarterback or a tight end or a linebacker or whatever position you play. I would That would be hypocritical of me. And it's frankly not what I believe. But I am also lamenting the loss of what was and what I grew up on and the tradition and the rivalries and, frankly, bummed out like a lot of people watching this final Pac-12 season and, and uh, you know, as we knew it at least. And, and a lot of people are upset when we say final Pac-12 season because Oregon State and Washington State want to continue to play under that banner. And they're like, hey, it's not the final Pac-12 season. We're going to play on. But – you know what I mean. It's the final Pac-12 season. Like, it, the Pac-2 is going to play on. It's going to, you know, they're going to try to create something different. They're going to try to survive uh, while Charlie Baker figures out and the NCAA figures out what comes next. But I just want to take a minute off the top of the show today to kind of have a real conversation with you, the listener. Like, you're probably going through a lot of the same stuff that I'm going through in watching all of the changes. You're trying to enjoy the end of the season and what should be a fun bowl season should be. Uh, and now amid this, you've got, you know, transfer portal Palooza and you have chaos at Oregon state to a certain extent. I mean, Trent Bray trying to hold it together the best he can. And Scott Barnes, the athletic director trying to hold that football program together the best they can and put themselves in position to compete. But, you know, I'm left going, um, you know, I'm not sure what's coming next. I'm not sure what's around the corner. I think I know what's around the corner. I think ultimately college football will splinter off. And I thought the report today about the NCAA president saying, hey, um, you know, we're going to try to see, we're going to float the idea and see if there are some colleges out there that are willing to say, hey, we're going to pay our athletes. And this will be like the paid semi-professional slash professional tier of college athletics. And the Ohio States and the Michigans and the Oregons and the Washingtons that uh, can afford to go and pay everybody on their team, maybe they join that, that rank of college football. But does it ruin college football for you? Does it feel the same? Because there's part of me, even as I'm watching the transfer portal and NIL, and let's be real, it's the Wild West. I mean, Cam Ward, quarterback Washington State, he jumps in the portal, and the last time he was in the transfer portal, he transferred from Incarnate Word University to Washington State. And I knew what he got because I did some reporting around Cam Ward and, and kind of found out what he was getting paid to go to Washington State. And I found out that the Cougar Collective in the summer of 2022 paid Cam Ward a package that was worth $90,000. Felt like a lot of money at the time. Still is a lot of money to a lot of people, but not in today's market for a quarterback. But they paid him a, a package worth $90,000. It was $50,000 in cash. It was the use of a leased pickup truck, and it was housing, and it was some travel for his family that lives in Texas uh, to uh, have the ability 
to travel to Pullman and some other Pac-12 places so they could see their kid play. Cam Ward's parents are school teachers. So Cam Ward negotiated that deal. I don't know if he used an agent or not, but the Cougar Collective was happy to have him. Well, now he's back in the portal. And the whisper is, you know, maybe he's going to Ohio State. Maybe he's going to Oregon. Maybe that's just an agent who's working on behalf of Cam Ward floating all that stuff out there. I don't know. But I do know that his coach, Jake Dickert, in November, talked to reporters and said he doesn't have enough money. He doesn't have enough money to retain Cam Ward, and he doesn't have enough money to go out and get a replacement. You know, because I think in today's world, you can no longer just say, like, passion and spirit's going to get you by anymore. I mean, it's just completely real that the NIL matters. And the facts are Washington State were way behind. Not even competitive in some aspects of the NIL, right? And, you know, recruiting, you get, I mean, these kids tell you what they're getting. You know, so, you know, Oregon State probably has us by 10x. You know, Arizona has us by 20x. I mean, USC, Washington, Oregon, who even knows, right? It's a whole other planet. Um, that's part of what we need, and it's very, very important. In three weeks, it's going to be open target season on our players. That's what it's going to be, and it's already started, right? So, no, that's what's coming. We need to provide them with as much resources as we possibly have here to keep this team together, to keep recruiting, to keep going. It's the, it's the future of college football, and to ignore it or to ever think it's going to go away, uh, that's a long time in the horizon, right? So I think it's only going to grow in some capacity. And I'm very supportive of, of the players getting a piece of the puzzle and, and profiting off their name, image, likeness. I've said that many times up here. Uh, but to think as a university and a program to be where we want to be and we know we should be, it's got to be a huge part of it. It has to be, especially at the forefront of the football program. I'm kind of left thinking about coaches like Jake Dickert and, frankly, Trent Bray at Oregon State who just took the job and – you know, really uh, got, came in as at a bargain price for Oregon State, $1.8 million less than Jonathan Smith was getting last year to be the to coach in the same capacity. And I'm kind of left thinking if what we're going to see is we're going to see a reduction in coaching salaries and we're going to see a cost savings that happens there. Now, Jim Harbaugh's come out and he said that, you know, he would be willing to uh, take less money and, you know, the players should share in the profits and share in the success. And I think that's an interesting point. Also, um, you know, you've got, you know, Trent Bray at Oregon State who's looking over at the uh, Damnation Collective and going, hey, they've they've got this uh, initiative where they're trying to raise a million dollars, you know, and there's a million dollar match out there. You know, if you're an Oregon State fan, are you really opening your wallet and going, hey, I'm going to invest in this? And can you do that if you're an Oregon State fan? Frankly, I think it's inspiring if you do. But can you do that not quite knowing what you're buying, you know, because you don't have the full season schedule out there. And it, I almost feel like you need more information from the Damnation Collective and from Oregon State. You need them to do a little more talking about what they plan to do and how important that money is. And I think there's a lost opportunity from any NIL collective that isn't out there right now saying, look at, this is an arms race, and we're going to need to have a trove of resources to go out and get a quarterback and get a running back and get a linebacker. And if you want a really good football team on the field, uh, this is where all the recruiting is happening now. And the poor kids that, that are, are punished by this are high school kids more than any. Because with 500 scholarship players that are upperclassmen in the portal, 
What do you think is going to happen with an 85 scholarship limit at Colorado and Oregon and Washington and anybody else that wants to matter? You're going to go out and you're first going to go after upperclassmen, experienced players, talented players, proven players who are in the portal. You're not going to waste your time recruiting and giving a scholarship and investing resources in a freshman who is going to jump in the portal two years after you recruit him and after all your investment in him is going to dance off uh, with Texas or Texas A&M or Colorado or Nebraska. And so there's a real issue going on with the portal. There's a real issue going on inside the industry. And it's you I'm thinking about as the fan because you're in your living room or you're at the stadium and you're like me. Like, you miss your old college football. And you may understand, like, why it is that college athletes should participate in the financial success that so many people have enjoyed for years around college athletics. Coaches have gotten rich, right? The salaries in coaching have have just gone bonkers. And maybe it's just as simple as there needs to be a market correction with the salaries that the coaches are getting. You know, maybe nobody's worth $7 million, $8 million, $9 million, $10, $11 million a year coaching, and maybe that money needs to go back into being able to fund player salaries. And maybe that's what Charlie Baker's after. You know, maybe that takes care of the transfer portal and NIL. I don't know. But I want to hear from you at 503-417-7575. When you hear me talking about this, when you hear me lamenting the loss of what we all once knew. It's not just the Pac-12 that's dying, all right? It's college athletics. It's college football. It's it's the college football that you knew and I knew and, the, you know, the, the countless people who stood out there for years and said, hey, what about the value of an education? Uh, it, you know, it, it's no longer even that conversation anymore. You've got, you know, Oregon State and Trent Bray, who came on the show yesterday, and I said, you know, how are you selling Oregon State to recruits? Yeah, it's it's opportunity. There's a great opportunity here, even in the even in the kind of uncertain space that we're in. Uh, the opportunity to, you know, to, to win a lot of games, to be on a big stage, um, and then this is also also is a place of development. And no one, right, especially on the West Coast, has developed players like Oregon State guys that come in. Great coaching. You're gonna you're gonna leave here a better player in person than when you walk in the door. And for the guys that value that part of it. You know, we'll continue to get guys like that, which is guys we want. And and I like hearing that stuff, okay? But I also, at the same time, am going, is that a little Pollyanna? Because what I hear recruits and their parents talking about, you know, maybe not the first thing, but it's probably the second thing that they bring up after playing time and who's going to coach my kid and, you know, how many, where are you playing your games? It It then, the conversation turns to, well, the collective at such-and-such such school is offering XYZ. I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575. What do you make of the whole damn thing? Cal is in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports. Eugene called in. Cal, what's on your mind? Well, I think uh, myself, like most people, think that the portal has gotten way out of control, and we all miss watching players play for our teams for two, three, four years. And uh, clearly the NCAA is kind of going to be hands-off on this. So I would love to see the correction be done in the NIL field. So, if, you know, if you're going to come to Oregon and I'm going to give you an NIL contract, I want to I want to give you a two-year contract. Or if you're going to come for two years, I'll give you a million bucks a year contract for two years with a buyout if you leave early. Or, and if you only want to do one year, then it's only a $500,000 contract. I think that's something that we could, that could be a way we could fix it without the NCAA itself. 
Yeah, and I think that I, I've considered that, and I kind of wonder, then does it become, you know, and I waited for, you know, the collectives to, to kind of go up in arms when players who have already, you know, J.J. Uyunglele comes to Oregon State, he leaves. Cam Ward goes to Washington State, he leaves. How do the collectives feel about that? You know, I've wondered that. But I also kind of think the minute you do that, you know, you know what's going to happen is, you know, Texas A&M, Oregon, SMU, USC, some of these schools that we all know to have collectives that can really spend, that really have buying power, uh, they're going to go, eh, it's okay. You know, we're going to leave your contract open-ended. Uh, we're happy just taking you, and, uh, you know, if you leave after a year, that's on you. But I already think that some of that stuff is built into deals, and I think they're going year by year. Now, Stephen, you know, I'm a purist, but I'm coming to grips with, like, hey, this is all changing. I'm going to have to find peace with it. Where are you on all this? Yeah, I'm I'm more of a purist just like you are, uh, you are but I'm trying to adjust at the same time because I know things are going to be so different next season. I don't even know that we can really grasp how different it's going to feel. Like, this season – felt different already as is with the Pac-12 crumbling and we already know all these teams are moving conferences. I think next year, John, it's going to feel so almost undescribable at the very start of the year. Like, what are we watching? This is a completely new sport. And I think there's a lot of potential for it to not be great, right? And I, and I love college football, but the way that college football is being ran right now is incredibly dumb. Incredibly dumb with all the way from the, you know just the four-team playoff, the college football inv- playoff invitational, as you would call it, to NIL, to the transfer portal. It's all really dumb. But then on the field, it's just so much fun. And so I, I think there is potential where they're trying to do so much stuff off of the field that it's going to ruin the on-field product at some point. I really hope not. And I am afraid that 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 it will start, I think, next season. Like, that's when it will officially start because of all the new conferences and things like that. So I am, I'm cautious. I'm I'm just worried. I'm cautious about everything right now with what's going on in the college football world because I love it. I love college football. I love their traditions. I love the rivalries, but we're losing all of it. And and we're not going to get a lot of these rivalries and conferences that we've seen growing up. So I'm a little worried, John. I'll be honest. Yeah. And I look at the, deal today from charlie baker it's it's revolutionary he's the ncaa president his background is you know as a lawmaker the governor of massachusetts now he's the president of the ncaa and essentially what he is saying is he plans to introduce a proposal that creates a subdivision within division one that grants schools autonomy around policy making basically it permits them to pay athletes And it it permits them to make them employees. And members of the subdivision will be permitted to strike NIL deals with their own athletes. That's a move away from the current structure. And they can directly compensate the athletes through a trust fund. Schools will be required to distribute uh, tens and thousands of dollars in educationally related funds. There's no limit on that. There's no cap on the amount of funds that a program can provide an athlete. And it kind of kickstarts the idea that we're going to see a fracture. And, you know, entry into this, by the way, it requires schools to invest a minimum of $30,000 per year per athlete in an educational trust fund. And schools would determine when the athletes receive the amount and which four-year athletes, uh, you know, you know, can get that money because – uh, basically, it says half of the athletes that are countable 
We'll figure out what countable means. I have to be paid $30,000 or more. And you must continue to abide by Title IX. That means 50% of the investment has to be with uh, female athletes. And the umbrella would remain, uh, I mean, the uh, division would remain under the umbrella of the NCAA. And you continue to compete for championships. But uh, the NCAA would keep oversight. Now, I think this is the separation that everybody's been talking about, like Chip Kelly. Formal split between the Power Five and the, you know, the haves and the have-nots, basically. Now, it's a proposal at this point, but it does create a financial gap that, you know, that is literal. And we all know that there's already a financial gap that exists because we know, as we watch the portal, that the Ohio States, the Oregons, uh, the USC's, Alabama, Georgia, you know, there's a faction of school that can spend. And then there's a faction of school that is trying to raise, you know, forty nine ninety nine per member of the NIL group, you know, and it's it's just a different model. And so, you know, in a sense, this would allow the institutions basically to say, hey, we're buying your NIL rights uh, of all your of your as you and an athlete. Stephen, I'm buying your NIL rights. I'm going to give you. Um, you know, a salary of uh, $150,000 a year. I'm going to put money into a trust fund for you, and I'm going to have the ability now to have you go out and be an endorser for me in the athletic department. And you might see, think that that's a good deal because you don't have to go hustle now. And you know that, hey, you're just getting, you're getting a uh, flat rate and you're taken care of by the university. So it'll be really interesting uh, to see what happens if you do the math on it it's about six million dollars a year for that uh, to meet that requirement that minimum requirement and so i kind of just wonder where's the six million coming from and i think that six million is going to come from coaching salaries i think you're going to see some reduction there and i think it's going to come from opportunities as the schools go out and try to uh you know sell those endorsements themselves uh it's a deeper conversation for another day uh up next i want to talk about the college football bowl season can we just ruminate in the bowl season, Jerry Palm is the bowl expert at CBS Sports. We're going to go through the bowl games. What must you watch? How did Oregon end up with Liberty? What about the name or the number drawn out of a hat that put Notre Dame in the Sun Bowl? Jerry Palm's got it all, and he's next. Our next guest is billed as the resident sports geek at CBS Sports. He's a band geek, too. I believe he played the clarinet. I think he's. Uh, I think it's three generations of band members. Purdue University band. Is it three generations, Jerry Palm? It's actually two, um, but six of us total from my family have uh, marched in Purdue band. What makes uh, a good? My, my best. My best instrument was bass clarinet. Yeah. Um, it's the only one I ever really felt comfortable playing. I have a checkered history with instruments, um, but <laughs> I marched out those sax. You know what's bad is I, I don't know the difference between clarinets. Do you think poorly of me because of that? Like, I hey, thought there was no, one clarinet. Bass clarinet is bigger, hmm. and okay. it's got low-end sound. I also played contrabass clarinet one year, which weighed more than I did at that time. That's a big I was instrument. Like six, one, six one and 125 my senior year of Purdue. <laughs> The marching band. The band is on the field. I had somebody recently ask, before we get into the college bowl games, which is what you're here to talk about, I had somebody ask me what makes a good band. And I, 
I I know I texted you, but maybe we can have this conversation just for a second here. Okay. What makes a good college marching band? Um, well, first of all, spirit, because that's their primary job. But when it comes to you know the shows, the shows should be entertaining, uh, well played, and well marched. You know, a, a good drill, but also the execution. You know, you have a good drill, you execute it well, you play well. Um, and then, you know, spirit in the stands. Jerry Palm, I have to know your reaction when you saw the college football playoff selection committee emerge, you know, uh, from conclave and uh, declare that Florida State undefeated was not worthy of being a top-four team. What was your reaction? That's just egregious. It's, uh, I don't know how you leave out a major conference undefeated team. And the excuse has it's the quarterback, but they beat number fourteen for their conference championship with their third string quarterback. So obviously, they're resourceful enough to find other ways to win. But this is a committee that decided Texas deserved a second chance, Alabama deserved a second chance, but Florida State didn't deserve a first one. And I can't get that. I just can't. I can't accept that decision as valid. What would you um, have that done? That said, I picked Alabama to win. I picked Alabama to win the playoff. Now that they're yeah. in, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Florida State's got to be in. I mean, you can't leave. You just can't leave a team like that out. Um, and then that would have knocked out Alabama um, because you can't put them ahead of Texas. But yeah, Florida State has to be in. And if the quarterback was such a big problem, why didn't they drop him out of the top four before this week? Yes. Yeah, I mean, because the quarterback's been out three weeks, right? So, you know, if it was that big of a problem, why are we waiting till the very end to drop them out? Yeah, Probably because they, they didn't, hoping. Want the, didn't want the scrutiny of that decision until the end. Uh, but it's no, it's just, I just I, I would have had a if I'm on the committee, I would have had a difficult time accepting that decision. Florida State, Georgia, in a Orange Bowl. If Florida State wins that game, do they claim a, a co-national championship? If I'm Florida State, I am totally claiming it. Um, that said, I, I always say this about the non-playoff bowls, all of them. You can't really judge teams and conferences based on what happens in bowl games because of transfers, opt-outs, coaching changes. Nobody plays a bowl game, just a regular bowl game, with the roster that got them that. As the bowls are unfolding... And we're going to get into some of the bigger bowl games in a second. But as it's all unfolding, Oregon on Friday, you know, was knocking on the door, hoping it had a chance to be in the playoff. I think if Oregon wins the game Friday, Jerry, I don't think they get in. I think they're knocked out. You agree with that? No, I think you'd have to put them in. They, they thought that that was the best of the one-loss teams all along. They would have beaten you know, number two or three Washington. I think they're in. Yeah, I think they have even to with be. an Alabama win, do you think at Texas they put Texas yeah, behind Oregon? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they still leave Texas behind Oregon, where they had been all along. Jerry, the Duck fans are not happy with Liberty in the Fiesta Bowl, and I've tried to explain. But somebody highest, has to play them. Yeah, somebody has to play them. They're the highest ranked group of five. They didn't play anybody. They went undefeated. This is the system. Yep. Well, you know what else yep. do you say to Duck fans? That's it. I'm sorry. Go out and, you know, it's, it, just don't lose that game. 
like I just said, teams should not be judged by what they do in bowl games, right? But don't lose that game. You know, that's, I mean, you, you can only play the opponent in front of you. Go out and play the opponent in front of you. And respect that opponent by preparing well to play that game. Speaking of bowl games, Pac-12 championship game loser, Jerry, 0-11 in their subsequent bowl game. They've it, it, In the uh, modern Pac-12 wow. era, the loser of the title a, game. A, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, I mean, you think you just walk out once and get one, right? Oh, and 11. Oh, and 11. Wow. Let's talk semifinals. Alabama, Michigan in the Rose Bowl. You like Alabama. I like Alabama. I don't, I want to know why you like them. I just think that Alabama's offense is more dynamic. Uh, Michigan's a really good team, you know, and their defense is fabulous, but they haven't played anybody like this with the possible exception of Ohio State because Ohio State's got some pretty good offensive weapons um, and, and a really good defense as well. But I, I just I don't trust Jim Harbaugh it's at this level. I trust him in, in the Big Ten. I don't really trust him at this level. Alabama, the reason I picked Alabama to win it is that when you look at these four teams, Alabama's the one with experience and successful experience in the playoffs. Michigan's has experience but no success. Washington hasn't been since before anybody involved with the program was in the program. Um, Texas has never been. So I just I like Alabama's experience in this situation. That's why I picked them to win the playoff. Uh, but I think that that's a, it's a really interesting matchup, and that could be a pretty low-scoring game because both those defenses are pretty good. That other semifinal, Texas and Washington, feels like it's going to be a hell of a game in New Orleans. I I like Washington. Yeah. Who do you like? I like Washington. Yeah, I agree. I like Washington. That's a really good team. Um, and I think Washington's defense is better. And, you know, defense wins championships. Both those offenses are explosive. Uh, but I think that if you need somebody to make a stop, I think Washington's more likely to make a stop. But I think those two games are going to be completely different. Like, I think you know, Alabama and Michigan is going to be a really hard-fought battle in the trenches. But um, the Washington-Texas uh, game, I think it's going to be up and down the field. I think that will definitely be the more entertaining of the two games. As I uh, pivot to towards a possible national championship, uh, you know, we, you're, you're free to change your pick after you see the semifinals, but Alabama-Washington in a potential – Hypothetical title game in Houston. Who do you like there? I like Alabama. I just I I like Alabama's experience in this situation. Now, obviously, Washington would have won a game to get there, and Washington's really good. It's, 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 these are four really good teams, and in fact, any of the top eight would be capable of winning this playoff if you had a big enough playoff to include all of them. As, as far as I'm concerned, Ohio State, Georgia, Oregon. All of those teams are good enough to win a playoff. We had a 12-team playoff this year. It would be lit because you've got eight teams that could legitimately win it. But we don't. Um, but I think uh, I like Alabama. I, I like their experience in this situation. They're a good defensive team. Uh, they can be an explosive offensive team. So they're similar because uh, Washington is the same kind of a team. But, you know, I just this is a, this is a game that Alabama knows how to win. Give me an idea of what you think has happened, because I know there's some other years where we've looked at the at the playoff and we've gone, gosh, this is 
Georgia's tournament to lose. You know, it could be Georgia, it could be Ohio State, it could be Alabama, it could be LSU. There, there hasn't been that depth. Why are we getting some parity and depth to the field? Uh, it's just one of those years. Um, but yet it's, I mean, that's the thing about sports is that, you know, seasons live in their own vacuum. You know, this year we had a really glorious year where the top eight teams were the top eight teams for the entirety of the college football playoff rankings until really the end. Um, And actually, it was still the top eight teams at the end, but the order was much more shuffled because you you had these teams finally playing each other. We went into championship weekend with eight teams at the top, four undefeated, four with a loss. Of those four, three had lost to one of the other teams. So, you know, it, it, it was really, a you know, a top eight and a gap to nine. And, you know, I hope we get this in the 12-team playoff era because it would be nice to have eight teams that are capable of winning a playoff if you have a big enough playoff to include them. This is the first time that that has happened in the college football playoff era. Jerry Palm, CBS Sports, is our guest. The Cotton Bowl has got number seven, Ohio State, number nine, Missouri. You've mentioned it's going to be difficult to, uh, you know, kind of draw big conclusions. But, you know, as I go through the Peach Bowl with Ole Miss and Penn State and the Orange Bowl with Florida State, Georgia, and the Liberty Bowl with Liberty and Oregon, what's your must-watch New Year's Six game that's not a semifinal? Oh, Florida State and Georgia, for sure. It's, it's a battle of five and six, plus the, the team that really got screwed you know, with a chance to make a statement against the two-time defending champion. So that, that is definitely the highlight game of those four. Um, I, I think they're all good games. But, well, Oregon should crush Liberty if they show up ready to play. But otherwise, you know, these, are, these are all really good games, but that's the one where someone has a statement to make. Jerry, the rest of the bowl season comes together. Notre Dame ends up in in uh, El Paso to play against uh, Oregon State in a Sun Bowl, and you know it's immediate sellout. And the Sun Bowl always takes care of the teams. Like you know, it gets yeah, a bad rap. It's, it's great bowl. No, I've been to two of them. It's a it's a great game and a great bowl. How does Notre yeah, I, Dame? I love that. I, how how does Notre Dame end up there? It, it did it come down to a lottery? You know what? Yeah, apparently so. Well, I guess Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame had checked three bowls off that they didn't want to go to because they'd been there before, and I think literally drew the name out of a hat. Man, the ACC was thrown for a loop when Florida State didn't make it, and now Louisville is out of the New Year's Six. Like, the ACC has made arrangements, you know, because these conferences do that in advance based on expected, you know, college football playoff rankings and things like that. The ACC had been prepared for Louisville to be in the Orange Bowl and Florida State to be in the playoff. Well, you know, all of a sudden Louisville's available to the rest of the bowls, and now, now they're scrambling, and Notre Dame is an ACC team for the bowl structure. And uh, so Notre Dame ends up in the Sun Bowl, which – Notre Dame, Oregon State's a really good game. I mean, uh, DJ, oh, I can't pronounce his last Uyengalele. name. Uyengalele. Yeah, Uyengalele. For you to yeah. say. I should, yeah. you know, I should be able to. I've been to Hawaii a few times. I should be yeah. able to pronounce that. Yeah. Um, anyway, he's not going to be there, right? He's in the transfer portal. Yeah. So, 
Um, and I don't know, you know, that, and that's the thing about that game. It's like a regular season game between those two would be great. I don't know what we're going to get in the Sun Bowl, but that's a good bowl. Yeah, and you're going to get a new coaching staff at Oregon State. Then oh, yeah, uh, even the number two quarterback, Aiden Childs, is out. But Ben Gulbrinson, who started last year and went 7-1 oh, yeah. as a starter, will start that game, it looks like. So Gulbrinson yeah. has played the long game. He gets the bowl game. So uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see that. You you know, you have news today with Charlie Baker coming out saying, you know, hey, you know, with this idea of fracturing – Major college football. I'm a purist. I think you're a purist as well. What What do you make of what's happening with college football? Yeah, it's it always has felt like that kind of thing was coming, where you know the bigger money schools might break off and turn into professional sports. Um, you know, just play the player salaries, give them benefits. Um, I wonder how many schools will choose that route. I mean, I, you can probably name 30 that will, but, you know, are, how many are really going to choose that route? Um, and then what about the others? You know, I, it's, there's a lot of questions, more questions than answers for that sort of a thing. And it's not the kind of thing that's going to happen immediately because the, the, putting, putting something like that together is, is going to take a few years if it, if it passes at all. But it's an interesting proposal. Purdue will play a uh, road game next year at Oregon State. Are you coming out for the yeah. game? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's the plan. Yeah, um, we, I've never been to Oregon. The whole state never been to Oregon. Oh my god! So um, I've, I've been to forty-seven, and Oregon's not one of them. So <laughs> yes, we're playing. We're planning to go, and then I think next year Purdue plays at Oregon, and I, we'll probably come to that too. I think. All right. Um, so I, yeah, here's so what I'm going to do. I'm looking forward. Looking forward to a visit at Reeser Stadium. Yeah, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah, Reeser. Yeah, but here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to put together a visitor's guide just for you. And we're going to solicit input from our listeners, and we'll give you a list of places you need to see, places you need to eat, where you need to go. We'll have you totally covered. That would be much appreciated. We, uh, my wife and I, like to visit college campuses when we travel, uh, even if there's no game involved. We just, we really enjoy the college environment, so... Um, but yeah, any any help uh, on Oregon State and uh, and the surrounding area would definitely be welcome. Uh, it'll mind you a little bit, you know, because I I covered the Big Ten, you know that, and uh, I was out yep. there covering Purdue, and it'll it's not unlike some of the Big Ten college towns. It's got that feel to it. So oh, I, would, I think I would expect yeah. that it is like yeah, I, I would be surprised if it wasn't uh, a you know a, a good college town environment. Jerry Palm, you're the best. I appreciate you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, anytime. Thanks. There he goes. And the band is left the field, has left the field. Coming up, uh, our big splash. And we're going to visit with Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Editor. He has been camping in the portal. What the heck is going on in there? We'll find out from Huffman at 4 o'clock. Be here. Did you enjoy the college football season? I did. Even though I knew that... It was the Pac-12's last season. I had fun watching it. I thought there was, I thought there were good teams, good performances, compelling games. I thought Colorado gave us about an interesting month at the beginning of the year. That was, that you know, that first month of the season sometimes can be a little bit of a, a lull because you don't get a lot of great games sometimes in the non-conference. I thought Colorado filled a lot of the gaps with a little bit of excitement in the late night. That Colorado Colorado State game, the hype. You know, the Colorado-Oregon game over the years hasn't been a big 
must-see game, and it was. Um, I think Oregon State uh, was a compelling that, or Washington State for the first four or five weeks of the season was compelling. I think uh, Washington certainly was a story that had staying power. Uh, USC was a little bit of a reality television show. Um, UCLA gave us a head fake. Arizona was a nice surprise. Um, and, and that's not even counting kind of the national games that were going on in other conferences. Steven, did you enjoy the college football regular season? Yeah, I thought it was a really good college football regular season, and I, I think it accumulated up into this college football playoff where we didn't exactly know who was going to make the top four. And usually, for the most part in the, in the college football playoff era, we we know who's going to be the top four going into the you know going into that Sunday. Where at least this year there was the question of, well, are they really going to leave Florida State out? And you know, so for that reason, yeah, I think it was a really good season. And then you look at the Pac-12. I mean, this is one of the best Pac-12 seasons. I remember in a long time. I mean, there were some really good teams, and they got the respect this year that they haven't necessarily gotten before. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, on the field, I thought it was a great season. And uh, I, I think, you know, we I complained a little bit earlier about the NIL and the transfer portal, but I really think that does help the product of college football, that there's so many more guys that we know, and there's so many more experienced guys that I, I think it made for a better product, especially in the Pac-12. Will the postseason fall flat? I, I kind of wondered... The bowl season itself doesn't feel like it's going to have a lot of pizzazz to it. And some of that is the matchups. Like Oregon State, Notre Dame would be great if Jonathan Smith and DJ were playing in that game and Smith was coaching that game. And instead you're going to get kind of this, um, you know, interim coaching staff and you're going to get Goldbrinson, which is interesting. I want to see Ben Goldbrinson go out and win that game. But Oregon's playing Liberty. I think Oregon should beat them about 75 to nothing, and let's see what happens. Um, but, you know, so a lot of pressure on the semifinal games. And if, you know, if Alabama beats Michigan and Alabama runs away with it, you know, are we going to be left going, well, the postseason didn't deliver? We could be. and But that's kind of how college football is made out to be now. It's all about the college football playoff, and the bowl games don't matter. Nothing else matters besides making the playoff, where I think before the playoff, you know, some of these teams took pride in making these bowl games, and that's just one of those things that we're going to lose tradition-wise. And now you talked about this earlier. The bowl games, they are less and less meaningful now that people are transferring already. The transfer portal opened up on Monday. 500-plus players are in there. We don't even know who's going to be playing for a lot of these teams and if they're even going to matter or if they care about this game at all. So it's not even about the bowl games anymore. It's about the coaches and the and the recruiters hitting the transfer portal getting ready for next season, this season's over. Like, this season is already over, and we're already looking forward to 2024 season. Let's go to the phone lines. Mike's in, Mike is in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John, for having me on. I, I don't know about you, but I, I got into this football season. I really enjoyed it start to finish. But with everything that's been happening with the transfer portal, this is like they've become like professional sports. And it's the haves and the have-nots. Uh, there's, there's, there's no e- equality or a chance for like a team like Oregon State to compete against the big people. I'm just depressed with the way this thing ended up. I, I mean, I, it, it blows me away that the Pac-12 died. It shouldn't have. And it, it's going down a, it's going down a, a pathway where I might as well just invest in the National Football League. 
Yeah, yeah. You're talking about investing your time, your energy, your effort, your hopes. Um, and I, you know, look, I don't blame you because what part of what I love about college football is that it's not the NFL. <laughs> you know, like I, there's a reason why I go. You know, people ask me, "What's your favorite sport to watch or cover?" And I, w- I always have said college football. I don't say football. I say college football. And I love the NFL, too. I, and, I, and I'm a baseball guy. And I follow the NBA. And I watch a little hockey, but mostly playoff hockey. And, but I don't, like, I, college football is different. It, it's, it's always felt different. And the problem I'm having, maybe you're hitting on it there, Mike, is that it's feeling a little bit too close to the NFL. Brian's in Milwaukee. Brian, welcome to the show. Yeah, you're great, John. And Stephen made a great comment about, yeah, I love it, but it's changing. Embrace. I mean, he didn't say that, but that's kind of what I got. And he's amazing. So you guys are both amazing. Thank you. You call it any time, Brian. Brian needs to call more. We're amazing. That's like Anna's dad who says, I'm perfect. <laughs> Drives Anna crazy. Oh, you're perfect. All right, thank you very much. You you can stay as long as you want. Um, look, uh, I I think you have to embrace it, and you have to acknowledge it's changing. You can't be you can't have your head in the sand. But at the same time, I I don't blame you if like one day if we all sit around and go, you know what I love about college football, the college football games, not the NIL, not the transfer portal, not the off season, not the bowl season the games themselves. Up next, we're going to visit with Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports. Well, the transfer portal is uh, has turned into a stampede. <laughs> and the recruiting experts nationally have never been more tuned in. And the national guy, 24-7 Sports, Brandon Huffman, is going to join us here in a moment to talk about what he sees happening. I've got a lot of questions for him. I also want to know kind of what what is going on with high school kids. Simple math will tell you, 85 scholarships, if there's 500-plus football players on scholarship who have jumped into the portal, I think there's going to be a lot of college programs that are going to uh, opt to give scholarships to those players. Does What's left over? What has that done to the high school recruiting scene? Is it squeezed? The high schools. And where are those kids going? Are they going to the Big Sky Conference? Community colleges? Are they walking on? What's happening? Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor, 24-7 Sports, joining us now. You've been busy, man. How are you doing? Uh, I'm exhausted. It is a busy time of year between the coaching carousel, the transfer portal, official visits. I'm already looking forward to the holiday season because that means everything slows down for a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> how to give us an idea of how that's changed for you over the years you've done this for a while how has the transfer portal complicated this time of year for you i wouldn't say it's complicated i think because recruiting has been expedited so much sooner in the process with schools trying to get their classes done by june every year you know that come november december you're gearing up for the coaching carousel and the portal and you're prepared for it what what it's doing is it's making your 
pivot instead of just covering high school recruits, you're basically getting ready to cover guys' second recruitment or third recruitment. And so it's, you know, just added a whole other dimension and layer of stuff you have to track. No longer can you unfollow a kid after he commits. Now you might have to keep following him because you got to figure out what the second and third recruitment is going to end up like. Interesting. I, I think that's funny that and interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But, uh, you know, a kid like Aiden Childs goes to Oregon State mm-hmm. and now is in the portal. Uh, where where's What's the market for a player like Aiden Childs? Or, or do we just assume he's going to follow Jonathan Smith to Michigan State? Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to assume. I called my shot yesterday that I think it's going to be Michigan State. But make no mistake, there's still a market. You know, if you're Michigan State and you know you've got to turn things around quickly, you, I mean, we saw it in the first two years of Mel Tucker there. Michigan State was definitely playing the NIL game. And it might not just be Aiden Childs, but it's every player that's going to follow Michigan State. They need kind of a, you know, make this this thing happen quickly remedy, and NIL will help that. But I think, you know, depending on if you're a stopgap guy who might just be that missing piece at quarterback, or if you're in the case of Aiden Childs or Dante Moore, you know you're going to get at least two years with those guys. You might have more value because you've got multiple years. You're going to be a part of that program. But there is certainly a market, and Aiden, there's a reason that he's one of the top two or three quarterbacks in the transfer portal already. DJ Uyunglele, similar thing. He leaves Oregon State. I saw him uh, in Las Vegas. I bumped into him. He's the first person I bumped into outside the stadium. It was really weird. Uh, and I just kind of hey said, wished him well, and I told him stay in touch. But I'm kind of looking at him, and he's got some, you know, d- does where does DJ end up, or does he decide he goes to play baseball, or does he decide to declare for the draft and see what happens? Uh, Brandon, how do you read DJ's next uh, move? There's a lot of buzz right now about Florida State, which would be pretty fascinating considering he left the ACC, and at the time, you know, Clemson was the ACC champs when he left. You know, he helped lead them to that ACC title. Now he might be going back to the ACC to play at Florida State, who, you know, I think with the injury of Jordan Travis, obviously, besides being left out of the, the playoff race, Kate Rodemaker and Brocklin might not have inspired enough confidence in Mike Norvell. So now DJ, who was a known quantity, he did start two years. And in fairness to DJ, I've said this all along, he was being unfairly judged against Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson as a player. If you look at what he did at Clemson, he actually had a pretty nice career, but compared to those Clemson guys, maybe not. So I think there's going to be a market, and it's not a surprise that Florida State is involved there because they may have some young guys that they like. Luke Cromanhoek's their 2024 commit. DJ allows them to not have to rush Luke Cromanhoek next year. It gives them an experienced guy. So keep an eye on the Seminoles for DJ. I like that. Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports national recruiting editor here. You mentioned the college coaching carousel and then the conjunction of the portal. Have you seen a shift in the kinds of coaches that are being hired? Is is there a bigger emphasis on recruiting with the portal being so important? No, not not as much as it, it used to be. And I think that, you know, you when you saw what Lincoln Riley did and what Dan Lanning did and, you know, what, you know, uh, Kellen DeBoer did at Washington, bringing in guys that they had familiarity with. Lincoln Riley bringing Caleb Williams. Bo Nix coming with Kenny Dillingham. Michael Penix, who had played for Nick Sheridan, Kellen DeBoer coming. Now it's, hey, if we bring this coach, he might have players at his previous school that want to play with him. Say no more about Aiden Childs potentially going to Michigan State. So recruiting is not as important. It's 
does their system attract players? Can we have a quicker fix because their system will attract players who want to play in that system? We saw even at Colorado with Travis Hunter and Shadur Sanders following Dion. Now it's more about who can you bring with you than can you recruit long-term because the portal will help you fix that problem every year. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be good from the portal, but the portal is now making recruiting a little bit more obsolete in a lot of cases. Interesting. Cam Ward, a lot of Washington State fans want to know uh, if there was anything they could have done to keep him. Uh, the conference uncertainty is certainly at play, but there's some NIL money out there for him as well. What are you hearing about Cam Ward? So there's a lot of buzz about Ohio State with Cam Ward, and given that on Sunday Ryan Day was noncommittal to Kyle McCord, and then Kyle McCord first thing Monday morning goes into the portal despite starting 12 games, having a top 5-7 to team all year long, winning 11 games, and much like DJ being unfairly compared to Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence, Kyle McCord was 11-1 as a starter, but he's being compared to Justin Fields and C.J. Stroud and Dwayne Haskins and, you know, Cardale Jones and Braxton Miller, so, you know, he all of a sudden is not as good as maybe those guys were. So Cam Ward, with the athleticism that he has, maybe he's more of a fit to what Justin Fields and C.J. Stroud did. And there's a lot of talk about Ohio State being in the driver's seat to potentially land Cam Ward. And, you know, the, the irony in all this is, remember when Cam Ward got to Pullman, he got the truck. And now all of a sudden it's a bad thing that he's chasing NIL. You know, yeah, <laughs> is his value way more than it was with the truck? Absolutely. But let's not act like he wasn't getting NIL perks when he got to Washington State in the first place. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because I was all over that at the beginning. And I, I talked to the Cougar Collective when they got Cam Ward, and they were happy to kind of talk about the fact that he got $50,000 and he got the truck and he got an apartment. And his whole package was worth eighty or 90000 but now eighty or ninety thousand is not buying you a starting quarterback. What is the market for for a starting quarterback right now in major college football? Yeah, I mean, I think it's realistic to think that a big time impact type of quarterback can command seven digits, and that's why I think if you're a one year stopgap guy who might be that difference maker, you know, a Sam Hartman type, a guy that had a great career elsewhere, but now Notre Dame thinks he might be the missing piece after what they're dealing with. You know, a guy like a, you know Ohio State saying, hey, we've got all the talent, but our quarterback play isn't there. You, you know, when Ryan Day and Matt Rule are coming out with actual hard numbers, that tells you what the market is. I also think that the younger guys, like a Dante Moore, Naden Childs, may command more because you know you're going to get two years of them. They can't transfer again. But I don't think every quarterback going into the portal is going to get what they think that they're valued. There's going to be a lot of quarterbacks that are going to be, you know, picked apart and say, hey, you know what? You were pretty mediocre and you were pretty average at your previous school. Why would you think that you're going to get a starting job and all this money? I think it's very isolated to the top five to seven, maybe ten quarterbacks available to get, you know, 750 to a million plus. But it's pretty incredible when you look at Caleb Williams. When he went to USC, the million dollars that he got was almost all lined up with the endorsements, with, you know, Beats by Dre, with United Airlines. Now it's straight up coming out of the collective's pockets, and there's a lot more where that money came from because schools are desperate for a win and they're desperate for a championship, so they will pay whatever they can get for a market-ready quarterback. At what point of the recruitment is NIL coming up in that conversation? Oh, it's early, and it's fascinating. I'll talk to college coaches, and they'll hold the junior day. They'll hold you know, a meet-and-greet, and they'll say, can you believe these kids? They come in. We gave them an offer. Like, your NIL is the NLI we're going to send you. That's all you're worth. And these kids are all thinking that they're going to be getting 
Caleb Williams type NIL deals, Jaden Rashada type NIL deals. The reality is most of these kids are going to get the NLI to sign, and there may be like, you know, a school says, hey, all 25 players are getting 30000 a scooter and cheaper rent. But a lot of these kids think they're getting number one overall player money, and they're not. But it's coming up much quicker in the recruiting process with kids. Now kids are not, hey, I, I want to see your facilities. Those don't, they don't care about that anymore. They don't care about the photo shoots. They want to meet with the collectives on unofficial visits and try to get business deals locked in. And this is where coaches are being blown away. But the funny part about all that is, is coaches are still playing the games and they're going and they're milky. We saw it with South Carolina last week. I think it was, you know, Shane Beamer was saying, hey, you know, if we could give this much money, you know, uh, he's calling people, all our fans need to give X amount of dollars. You know, they're trying to milk these dollars out of every booster that they can because they know they've let the genie out of the bottle. Trent Bray, Oregon State coach, came on yesterday's show, and he said, hey, it's a problem. It's a big problem. There were other coaches who are in contact with our players prior to the end of the season. Nothing can be done about it. How much of that is going on? You know, And, and again, players are going to have relationships with assistant coaches that have recruited them. But how much of that is going on during the season, Brandon? Plenty. And it's going on everywhere and anywhere. And it's usually pretty one-sided. It's mostly the schools reaching out to trainers, to private coaches that the players may have had, high school coaches, anybody in their circle to, to gauge the temperature, to see what are the chances of that kid, A, going into the portal, B, being interested in that school if he goes in the portal, and C, what's he going to need to make that school the choice. So it's happening. I mean, the groundwork's being laid. I, I don't know if you remember, when Nick Rolovich got hired at Washington State in 2020, he hired a director of transfer recruiting, which in 2020, that was mind-blowing. And that's how that was before NIL became a factor. Now, it's almost like schools are hiring their own internal capologists to figure out how to budget when they reach out to a kid who's at a school and, you know, it's real obvious he's not going to return to that school, they'll start gauging what are the chances he goes in the portal, what are our chances of getting him, and what's he going to cost. And now these schools now understand this is what it's going to cost to get him. We can either afford it or we have to lower our expectations and go somewhere cheaper. And they're trying to lay the groundwork to eight, ten different schools or eight to ten different players to make sure that they, you know, fill that spot. But it's going on way more. It's, it's not even the dirty little secret anymore. I think it's well known that, you know, the FCS and the G5 schools are essentially open seasoned on. Brandon Huffman, he is the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports uh, all over the recruiting landscape. Uh, I've been thinking about Oregon State. They're in a tough spot without a conference. They're going to play a Mountain West partnership schedule. They're existing in this space, Brandon, that's somewhere between a Power Four and maybe eventual relegation to the Mountain West, but they, they're trying to draw a line between themselves and the Mountain West. Will kids on the Mountain West rosters see Oregon State as a step up because of the facilities or maybe the potential, or can they recruit and, and basically poach the Mountain West schools? Yeah, I, I mean, this is going to be painful for Oregon State fans to hear and Washington State fans, but you know, your best comp right now is Boise State that, you know, you can still recruit high-end players because you're putting guys into the league, you're getting guys drafted, you get scouts coming to campus, those guys are successful. But, you know, I don't think, like, Ashton Junkie today, deciding to go back to Boise State, that's huge. That's going to be an exception to the rule rather than the rule of G5 schools holding on to guys like that. But Oregon State and Washington State both have the advantage of all those years of being Power 5 schools 
But that's not going to go away. Even though they may be playing a Mountain West type schedule, in most kids' minds, in most high school coaches' minds and college coaches' minds, Oregon State, Washington State are still Power 5 schools, even if their conference affiliation doesn't say so. So I think they're still going to be able to, you know, punch above their weight when it comes to the schools they'll be playing against. But it's certainly going to make it that much more difficult to maintain that for the next five to seven years unless their future is a little bit more stable in terms of their conference. Yeah, I think it's important that they kind of view this as like 24 months, two years, get somewhere, see if there's chaos, try to get to the Big 12, try to get to whatever, uh, you know, forms on the horizon in college athletics. Meanwhile, I'm Brandon, I'm thinking about high school kids. I mentioned it during your intro. I'm kind of wondering, just from a simple numbers standpoint, if fewer high school kids will get offered or what do what does a talented or a you know a, a low-end scholarship kid in in high school what is he doing right now he's, he's panicking you know I, I talked to a, a coach about an hour ago and his player had multiple FBS offers and was planning to take visits to both of those schools the next two weekends and then the schools came back and said hey you know what I know we offered him I know we we're gonna bring him in for an official visit but we're going into the portal we need to get guys that can play right now and now these kids are scrambling, and guys that didn't make a decision before the fall, and that's where it goes back to the calendar speeding up, with schools now trying to get 90% of their class done by June so they can focus on the portal or focus on the next year's class. If you didn't make a decision by then, you're hoping that an FCS school takes you, and then you bet on yourself and maybe go to an FCS school, prove it for two or three years, and then transfer up. But Guys that have waited a little bit longer to make their decision, there's not really a decision to be made anymore because their options have now waned. Man, it's that's that's nuts. And I and I keep like I wrote today that maybe what should happen is, you know, because I've talked to college coaches who say, well, why would I give a scholarship to a freshman when I know in two years, you know, he's not going to help me in the next two years, and in two years he's a threat to leave. Why not invest that scholarship in a player who can play right now? You know, I, I kind of wonder, Brandon, if the solution from the NCAA is to say, hey, you've got to you've got to give a minimum of five or seven scholarships to freshmen. I, I mean, I think that in a perfect world that would happen, but what, what's now happening is, you're, and you're seeing it with FCS schools. You're seeing these guys are the ones that have always done a really good job of evaluating and developing, and so these FCS schools are now getting better players than they ever were but then they know they're losing them in two years. So I think if the NCAA kind of mandated that you've got to bring in high school players, sure, schools will do that, but then in a year from now they'll just say, hey, you know what, we brought you in only because we had to. Why don't you go look at the portal and go somewhere where you actually can play? And that's what's happening. Even with highly talented players, they're being shown the door. They're being forced out and processed out. So even if the NCAA mandates that you've got to give a certain amount of scholarship, all that school's going to do is turn around and turn that guy loose in a year from now anyway. And – you know, today, uh, Teddy Buchanan, who was a three-year starter at, at, at uh, UC Davis, he had only G5 offers. His only G5 offer was Air Force. He had all FCS offers. He goes to Davis, stars for them for three years, goes in the portal, and now he's going to finish his career at Cal. That's what's happening more and more. The big sky schools that were getting the Cooper Cup type of players, the Vernon Adams, you know, remember when Vernon Adams made the jump from Eastern to Oregon and everybody said, oh, my gosh, how could this guy jump from the big sky to the Pac-12? Now you're seeing 15 to 20 big sky guys jumping to Power 5 each and every year. And But for every Vernon Adams, you get a Dakota Proof Cup. So these FCS schools know that if they get a guy and he flourishes, there's a good chance that kid's never going to finish his eligibility at that school. Wow. I, I think it's, it's all very uh... – 
fluid and unfolding. Uh, Oregon's been busy. Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, he was at a number of high schools. He must be, he and Joe Lorig and a couple other assistants, Junior Adams, must be flying around the West Coast right now uh, making visits. What are they getting out of these drop-ins on high school campuses? Well, that's the thing about Oregon is that they're such a brand that they can go pretty much and still in the month of December be in it for a lot of still uncommitted top 2024 guys. But more importantly, they're trying to get face time with the 25s and the 26s. So while they were in Idaho yesterday to go see Gatlin Bear, who was formerly committed to Boise State, they did the in-home. They're going back out to schools to make sure that their 2024 commits, they're recruiting, know that they still want it, but then also for those 25s and 26s to understand, hey, in crunch time, Oregon came to my school to check in on me man, they really want me. So that's the value is that it's not just locking up your final players in the 2024 class. It's making sure that those underclassmen you're recruiting know you are high on our board and we're using one of our precious visit days to come to your school to see you. Yeah, yesterday, uh, in addition to Idaho, they were in West Lynn, Oregon, visiting Josiah Molden and uh, West Lynn's campus and you know, getting a lot of face time there. Brandon, uh, you're doing a hell of a job. Uh, I know that there's a lot more to you than than college uh, recruiting, and over the years we've talked about Avery. And uh, can you give us the latest on the mission to kind of raise awareness and uh, and raise some funds and the Avery Huffman uh, Foundation? Yes, absolutely. I appreciate that, John. We just this year we celebrated the raising of over a million dollars since our inception as a foundation, which was started seven and a half years ago, and to raise a million dollars, especially during a COVID time, was fascinating. We've been able to support a number of different projects. We have two projects that we're supporting, one at Stanford University and one at Seattle Children's Hospital. And those are two of the most cutting edge DIPG research labs in the world. People are coming from all over the United States to get treatment at Seattle Children's Hospital. And one of the doctors there who has been doing this groundbreaking research, our foundation has been supporting. And this, the lab that he came from at Stanford is the other one doing groundbreaking research. And so we know that our funds that are going to these labs are making a difference. They're making they're moving mountains, and we are so grateful for the support that we've been getting. And we're, you know, we're not stopping until there is a cure. And so it motivates us each and every day. We're doing our end of year fundraising for 2023, but just know that we're moving mountains, and the people that are really smart and really good at this are doing everything they can because they're committed to the mission too. People who don't know, uh, Brandon's daughter Avery, diagnosed with an inoperable cancerous brain tumor, DIPG. Um, and that was in June of 2015, and Avery would have been 15 on October 19th of this year. And if you uh, if you'd like to read the letters that the family has written to Avery, I'm not going to be able to get through this. AveryStrongDIPG.org. Brandon, thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate you. Good stuff from Brandon. I need a commercial break. I hope you go to AveryStrongDIPG.org. Good stuff with Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports. I want to thank Jerry Palm, CBS Sports, who joined us in Hour 1. Trent Bray was on yesterday's show. If you missed the podcast of that, go get it. Uh, I'm efforting Sean Lewis, the San Diego State new head coach. He was the offensive coordinator at Colorado. I'd like to get Sean Lewis on the show to talk about his experience at Colorado, what he sees for San Diego State's program. Uh, and kind of what a coach who saw Oregon State from like the outside in in the Pac-12 
what he views the Oregon State-Washington State partnership in this next year like as a coach that will be competing against them, but not really. Like, they're not going to compete for a conference championship. They'll just be playing everybody. I think it's an interesting position for Washington State and Oregon State to assume. Uh, Anna will be coming along here later in the program. For those of you who offered your empathy and your advice for the traumatizing uh, experience that I had on uh, an airline flight uh, last week as a uh, man and a woman accused me of stealing their seat, damn it. Um, I thank you all for reaching out. I had a lot of people who reached out and said, man, you guys, what... You know, you were you were victimized, and I, anytime you want to tell me that I'm a victim, I'm all about that. I'm all for it. All I know, Steve, John, is I yeah. was not one of those people, and my son was not one of those people either. <laughs> he, uh, first thing I get home, my wife, my wife tells me how funny of a segment that was, and then my son goes, "Hey, Dad, why did John Canzano take that woman's seats?" Exactly. That was the first See? thing he said to me. See, I am up against it. And for people who missed it, uh, we we're on an Alaska flight. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, and at you know, Anna's coming along for the ride, and I decided the pl- the tickets were expensive anyway. It was just a little more to upgrade to first class. I had bought them early enough, and so I said, okay, at least on the way there, we're going to travel first class. On the way back, we're on a different airline. We're on Southwest, and we're with everybody else. And so I said, you know what? Let's go first class. And so right before the plane was going to take off, we're in row four. All of a sudden, I get a notification. We're in row one. Like, they changed our seat. I was confused by it, but I rolled with it, you know, because I'm not that guy. Got on the plane, was friendly with the flight attendants, took our seats in row one, stuffed our stuff overhead, and here comes two passengers, including a woman named Karen, who says, you're in our seat. You stole our seat. That's what they said. And I said, well, we were in row four. They moved us to one. It turns out they changed planes right before the the uh, plane was going to take off, and they had to eliminate one row, and they must have they have some criteria that they use. I don't know if I fly more than they do, or if we paid more than than they do. But blame the airline, don't blame me. And so they had to go back to coach, and you know they demanded their first class meals. So the flight attendant said, "Yes, we'll bring your meals back," which is kind of weird. That's an awkward thing. You're sitting, you know, back in coach, and all of a sudden you've got a tray, and you know. And and so I didn't think of uh, about it again. I, I I just forgot about it. It wasn't a big deal to me. And and then Karen uh, posted on my bald face truth Facebook page that I had stolen her seat and I should be ashamed of myself and that I'm privileged. And some of that's true, but the stolen the seat stealing the seat thing is not true. And uh, I I wrote a uh, uh, a very pointed response to her on Facebook. And then right before I hit post Anna said let me read that and she laundered it down to be much kinder and gentler and uh you know hey we're disappointed uh but we didn't steal your seats uh the point the bottom line is I sang you the screenshot of what she wrote I think she's out of line I think you're I think she's out of line but I tell you what my uh nine-year-old thinks you're out of line so (laughs) who who am I to argue with him you know he's got his own opinion I'm not going to tell him he's wrong uh here's the my favorite part of this is I know our listeners have a sense of humor, okay? I know the next time I see our listeners on a plane, they're going to be like, you stole my seat. <laughs> I know that's going to happen. I'm going to be cursed with this. Uh, but Karen, uh, and that's her real name, um, Karen posted on the Facebook page, I posted the response that Anna really wrote, and then I messaged the same response to Karen. I hope she sees it. She's trying to publicly shame me, you know? 
And uh, and I, I'm not trying to publicly shame her. I'm not using her name here. I, I just think sometimes you got to step back and know that you're talking about a first-class seat. It's a first-world problem. And most people are going to go, get over yourselves. Why are we even talking about this? Uh, uh, other than I think the fact remains that I didn't do a damn thing wrong and I got vilified for it. All right, let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's talk about Rex Ryan. He's looking at the NFL. He thinks he's identified the best team. He thinks it's the San Francisco 49ers. And who am I to disagree? Here's Rex Ryan. Punch it. Absolutely. It's not even close. Not even close. And, Greeny, I think in today's game, all right, today's game, you, you want to look at explosives, all right? And can you create them on offense and can you prevent them on defense? They're 49, plus 49 against their opponent. Mm. Nobody in the league is close to that. Mm -hmm. Nobody's close. So they play phenomenal on offense and they're phenomenal on defense. This is a team that has no weaknesses. And so to me, it's not close. Now, no weaknesses except a three-game losing skid earlier in the season. I was there for it, Rex Ryan. Uh, look, they look really good as long as they can stay healthy. Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, uh, George Kittle, uh, you know, uh, Brandon Ayuk uh, give give you know a lot of weapons for you know a quarterback Brock Purdy who's been pretty good defensively they're just very solid. I'm not sold on a couple of weaknesses. Their secondary is prone to occasional lapses, although they've been good lately. And the right side of their offensive line nowhere near as good as the left side of the offensive line. Trent Williams is the guy you want to be running behind. Here's Trent Williams, by the way. Uh, after the Eagles game in Philadelphia, punch it. I guess it's up to y'all to kind of interpret it, but I, I had full confidence that we would we would have this type of game from from the from the jump. You know, um, we got a quarterback, so it made it a lot easier this time. He's referencing the NFC title game a year ago. Um, I've seen people say that the 49ers win over the Eagles delegitimizes the Philadelphia Eagles season from a year ago. It had that feel in Philadelphia, and sports fans have seen this before. It had the feel of an ambush. It was a redemption game. A couple of years ago, Oregon fans may remember the Ducks going to Salt Lake City and getting ambushed at Rice-Eccles Stadium. It, was just, it just caved in on them. It had that feel for the Philadelphia Eagles. Can the Niners continue to play this way as the season unfolds? We shall see. It is a long season in the NFL. Scoot Henderson talking about his improved play, coming back from an injury. Punch it. I guess I'm just just picking it up a little bit. I know, um, no lost confidence. Just make sure I'm getting out there, getting getting a lot of reps and offense, defense. You know, while I'm, while I'm sitting down, I'm watching the game, making sure when I go in there, I know what to do. I know what we need, and, and at a certain time, when I go in there, and that's pace, and that's you know defense turnaround, um, converting. So um, just knowing knowing what I got to do. I think his start, the Scoot Henderson era in Portland, has been underwhelming. It's not all his fault. And there are certainly some expectations that were created as the Blazers chose Scoot Henderson at a time in which they were essentially replacing Damian Lillard. 
But Henderson being injured, his work ethic has not been questioned. Malcolm Brogdon talking about his work ethic. Plays look really good. Um, the thing about Stewart is he's in here working, man. He's in here working. It's not like you know he he got injured. He was working every day, you know, two times a day, trying to get back on the court. And I think he's you know played since he's gotten back, played some of his best basketball. So um, you know we're gonna continue, we're gonna see him continue to get better and better. The NBA has their in-season tournament going on. J.J. Redick declared it a resounding success. Punch it. I don't think you could have asked for a better night if you're the NBA than what we saw last night. With Indianapolis uh, just rocking, they've got the best in-season tournament court. They had the best in-season tournament jerseys. They've got a rising superstar (laughs) in Tyrese Halliburton. That Aaron Neesmith dunk at the end of the game where you see the players on the court celebrating, you see the fans, you see Halliburton screaming like out of joy. Like That's what the NBA wanted with this in-season tournament. And so as good as November was, as good as the, the group play was, I, I thought it was outstanding. This week is going to be even better because you've got these quarterfinals game, quarterfinal games at home where it, it's a playoff atmosphere. And then we go to Vegas. Yeah. which is an event unto itself where guys are playing for something. Celtics eliminated after the loss to the Pacers. Has it won you over, Stephen? Uh, no, it hasn't won me over yet. Um, I do like the fact that these guys are giving tons of effort in the regular season for these games, but I feel like uh, that should be like they should be giving effort anyways. I mean, they shouldn't need a, <laughs> they shouldn't need an in-season tournament to yes. have to motivate them. So it is fun to watch a team like Indiana, who hasn't made the playoffs for the last couple of years, get these type of national games and see their crowd uh, on hand. It's kind of like when the Blazers you know, are really good and they get a TNT game. The fans usually show up. So it's fun to see that. But uh, we'll, we'll see when it gets to Vegas how the atmosphere is because that will be a neutral court, brand new thing. So I'm not sold yet, but you know, it, it's, it's fun, I guess. Players are getting $50,000 if they make the quarterfinals, 100000 to get to the semifinals, 200000 for the finals, and 500000 each for winning the title. Are they playing for pride or are they playing for money? Oh, they're playing for cash. That That is for sure. Uh, Jason Tatum even said that. He said, you know, I don't really understand the rules of the tiebreakers, but, you know, I do understand if we win, we win money. So, uh, you know, I, I think that mo- you know, money motivates a lot of these uh, professional athletes, so that's what they're playing for. Pacers are into the semifinals. They're awaiting the winner of the Bucks knicks game tonight, or rather today. Uh, taking place on TNT. Lakers and Suns on the other side of the bracket playing today. Winner will advance to the West semifinal to play the Pelicans. Pacers-Pelicans against the winner of the Lakers-Suns, the winner of the Bucks-Knicks. Who's going to win this thing, Stephen? Um, I think I think the Pelicans. I think the Pelicans are going to win it all. Uh, they're very healthy right now, and when they are healthy, they are one of the biggest, one of the deepest teams in the NBA, and I think they're one of the best teams. I think they are a tough matchup, so give me the Pelicans. Pete Thamel, ESPN, with a little bit of news on the Oregon State front. He's talking about DJ Uyengalele and potential landing spots for the former Oregon State quarterback. Punch it. DJ Uyengalele, we could see a return to the ACC, Kelsey. Two schools that have emerged as his top suitors are Florida State and Louisville. He has no visit set. Mississippi State has also shown some interest. But DJU could be making a cross-country trip back to the Atlantic. He obviously started at Clemson, thrived last year at Oregon State, has one more year of eligibility left, and he's one of the top quarterbacks available in this portal. Is he being accurate with the word thrived? I felt like 
he had some nice moments. I also felt like he had some moments where we saw his ceiling. And that's why when I think about a place like Florida State, I go, ah, you better have a run game and a defense to go with it. What was, I don't think, what, what yeah. was DJ's biggest moment as an Oregon State Beaver? Like, there's not a moment that stands out for me from last season in a big-time game. And, and I felt like every time there was a big moment, we saw his limitations. Like, I think he could play in games against inferior competition and shine. And I think at times against you know some of the better teams in, in the conference, he had okay moments, but... I never saw a moment from him where I said, you know, he's carrying Oregon State to a win over a team it shouldn't beat. And and I think that's where, you know, his limitations in sort of thinking through progressions, being a half a click slow to deliver the football, you know, not feeling the pressure around him. There's a feel to the game that I just think DJ never really got. And, and I think he was in trouble if – Everything had stayed the same at Oregon State. I think Aiden Childs was going to take time from him next season if he decided to come back. So I think it's probably like as much talk about Florida State, I think he's a better fit at a place like Louisville. Meanwhile, you've got, uh, you know, uh, Dylan Gabriel possibly on the move. Is he uh, on the way to Oregon? Dylan Gabriel, very similar to Bo Nix. Dylan Gabriel, uh, sources just told me in the last hour that he's expected to take a visit to Oregon this week. Oregon has jumped out ahead as the favorite for Gabriel's services. He's obviously thrown for nearly 15,000 yards and 125 touchdown passes in his career. We'll see if there's another Hawaiian in Oregon. Obviously, Marcus Mariota won the Heisman there. Mariota to you, Pete. Uh, Dylan Gabriel coming from Oklahoma. Would left-hander, by the way, another lefty. Uh, if uh, Dylan Gabler ends up at Oregon, I think that's okay. I kind of expect something a little splashier from the Ducks, though. Finally, a funny moment on the Manning cast with Tua Tungleavoa, who basically pulled out a guitar and kept everybody entertained. Let's see. Um, I can play maybe uh, Tears in Heaven, Eric Clapton. Let's go. Let's see it. Let's hear it. Wow. Jump off sides. The Bengals jumped off sides. (laughs) Really good. It's hard to understand. Oh, I got this. I got this. Please, no. No one wants to hear you sing. <laughs> Keep going, Tua. Keep going. You're perfect. Great job of using the cadence. You need to work on your cadence. Singing. That's not quite Rick Neuheisel and born in the SEC, but it was close. Anna joins the show, 5 at 5, still ahead. Anna's in the studio. Anna's in the studio. Anna, did you hear we got no, I got no empathy from Stephen's son, who thinks I stole someone's seat. No yeah. empathy. He's not the only one who thinks that. I've heard from several people today. You know what? Are wondering why you they, stole someone's Yeah, they don't know what happened. They don't know what went down. I think I actually walk into those transactions 
uh-huh. in life with the deck stacked against me. Yeah. Because there's a whole bunch of branding, like radio and you know media outlets that I've worked for before have done. Them, you know, like, oh, he's watch out, he bites, that kind of branding. Yeah. Right. And so then when I walk into the equation, they ex- people always are surprised that I'm taller <laughs> than my uh, little mug shot, and they're surprised that I'm nicer. They say that. that it, oh, you're nicer. You're such a nice person. Yeah. They're <laughs> shocked by it. What? Um, the taller one is pretty funny because it's kind of like, what do you say to someone when they... And it just happened this last week. It happened at the Vegas, uh, at the uh, Pac-12 championship game. Yeah. When they're like, you're so much taller than I thought you were. And you're like, oh. Yeah. yeah. I'm, you know. Yeah. I, I'm not like 6'4", but I'm, you know, well north of six, six one. And so I think uh, for when you see me, don't be shocked that I'm not actually like seven inches tall. Like, because like, if you do the kind of the uh, proportions of the mugshot that people have seen for years, they expect me to be roughly the size of a bobblehead doll. Yeah. And so the guy, the guy, as we were walking through the gates of the stadium, the guy said, hey, can I get a picture with you? And then he, he and his friend, and then he said, you're so much taller than I thought you were. And you're right. I don't know what to say. Um, Surprise? When I was still doing a lot of anchoring, people would say to me when they met me, you're so much prettier in person. How do you and take I that? I was like, I don't know what to say to that either. How do you Th- take that? Things? No, kind of a weak things, I guess. Why do you think they said that? <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, because what they... Uh, do you think that they thought you were pretty on TV, but you're prettier in person? Or yeah, were I they, mean, I don't I, understand. I'm not going to complain about that, really. It's I just, don't get that one. It's a compliment. <laughs> I think people are trying to genuinely pay a compliment. But to the receiver, it does leave you thinking like, oh, well, it's just it's kind of like, oh, you think about it for a second. Like, what does that mean? What if the guy thought I was shorter than he expected? Do you think he would have said that? Exactly. I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. Well, what about if they say you're balder than you expected? Yeah. yeah. They, I do get a lot of people want to, like, you know, rub the top of my head or whatever. Like, it's a, like I'm Buddha's belly or something, you know? <laughs> like, it's a good luck thing at the stadium. <laughs> uh, hey, by the way, the Washington fans were mad at me. Yeah. They were all so mad at me because so mad. I did the worst thing to them. I picked Oregon to beat Washington in the Pac-12 championship game, and I, you know, I go on KJR radio. And I say, I, I like the Ducks, and I wrote it at johnconzano.com. I like the Ducks, and a lot of people like the Ducks. You know, uh, evidence is that the Ducks were favored by 9.5 or 10 points. So Vegas liked the Ducks, too. So I go on KJR Radio today, and Puck and Jim, who hosts the show, read mean tweets featuring me. Like so, you go on their show in Seattle yeah. as a guest, yeah, and they're they are reading out loud horrible mean things that about people me. are. They're tweeting this as you're on the air. No, like they they solicited the earlier in the show. They said text into our text line or tweet <laughs> and tweet us what you think about John Canzano picking Washington <laughs> and what you think about him, and we're gonna read them to him. When he comes on the show. And so I get on and they say, hey, we're going to do this bit. You know, it's mean tweets. And I said, that's fine. I can take it. And uh, <laughs> so then the subsequent mean tweets. And I don't know if I'm desensitized. Yeah. Like I covered Indiana basketball. Right. Uh, I covered Notre Dame football. 
I covered Oregon and Oregon State, and the Oregon and Oregon State fans, you know, are, have been, uh, you know, I've developed some thick skin. Right. Covered the NFL. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, Jerry Tarkanian. I've yeah. got thick skin. Like, you got to, there's, I don't know if there's anything you can say that would really, like, hurt me, uh-huh. but, you know. Which, they tried. Which, by the way, sounds like a challenge. They they somehow. tried. They sure tried. And one guy, I thought the best one was, <laughs> you know what? I hate you so much, John Canzano, that if you were on life support, I would unplug it to charge my cell phone. <laughs> That's pretty mean. That's pretty good, though. It is. Take some creativity. Pretty yeah. darn mean. Another tweet was them calling me the softy of Oregon. Now, isn't that ironic? Yeah. Because, so Softy is known for being such a homer. Oh, for, he's such a homer. You like, want you want to know? Huskies. He right? was, after the Pac-12 championship game, he took photos with the Pac-12 championship trophy. Like he had been on the team. Like he was in uniform. Number 99, Rudy Softy over here, running around the field. Like he got in on the last kickoff or something. And so he has his pictures with him holding the championship trophy. And you heard him. Oh, I we know. were leaving the stadium. Yeah. He was doing the post-game show. Yeah. Tell, tell our listeners what Softy sounded like doing the post-game oh, show after beating Oregon. He was insufferable. He was just gloating. He was basically saying, hey, we're just quibbling over the details here. I mean, he was really just like on cloud 11 uh, talking about the win. He was saying Pretty it funny. was the best thing that had ever happened in the history of the world, basically. <laughs> For about three hours on that post-game radio yeah, broadcast. Yeah, in about 17 different ways, yes. We, we were leaving the stadium. It was late. You know, we're in Vegas. Yeah. The night is young. I've got other things on my mind. Like, as we're leaving, I'm going, where are we going to go get eat, something to eat? Or what are we going to hang out? Or whatever. And all we can hear in the press box is Softy going, this is like the greatest thing that has ever happened to Washington. I just can't know. I, I, I don't know where it ranks. We're just quibbling over whether this is up with, like, the Big Bang that created the universe. Or was this maybe like, you know, the splitting of the atom? I don't know where. It's somewhere in that realm. But see, that's the funny thing about perspective. If they can call you the softy of the Oregon Ducks, they clearly don't know how the history of you and the Oregon Ducks and how you've been openly critical when they have not done well. Well, you have to, you have to sleep. You can't just, if things aren't well... Dan Lanning's lost three times in a row to Washington. You gotta say Dan Lanning's lost three times in a row to Washington, and the Oregon fans may not want to hear that, but that's what happened. And I thought he got out coached in the last game. And so it does, it's not to say he's a bad person or a bad coach. He just got out coached. He's got to do better, and I think he knows that. But yes, I don't think Oregon fans believe that I am a homer. I don't think Oregon State fans believe that I'm a homer. Not at all. I mean, to this day, yeah. there will be Duck fans, primarily oh, Ducks fans, that like come us. up. They will come up and they'll say, hey, don't be so mean to us. Or, you know, yeah. you've been nicer to us lately, but yada, yada. If your team wins those games, I'm going to be going, this is great. And your team loses, I'm going to say, this is terrible. <laughs> that's how it works. Okay? <laughs> Seattle, that's how it works. All right. The 5 at 5 is coming up. I cannot wait for this. Anna is here for the 5 at 5. She'll be giving us the five biggest stories in sports coming up in a minute or two. Pac-12 Conference with a little bit of news releasing their all-Pac-12 Conference football teams today. Offensive Player of the Year, Bo Nix, beating out Michael Penix Jr. Defensive Player of the Year, Leautu Latu, 
at UCLA. Kalen DeBoer gets the coach of the year. No surprise there. For those interested, uh, I do know that ballots were due on Monday. So potentially included the Pac-12 championship game. But some coaches in the conference who were voting may not have counted the Pac-12 championship game as part of the player of the year, coach of the year conversation. Bo Nix, first team offense. Michael Penix Jr., second team offense. Feels to me like some of those ballots may have been cast based on the regular season. Why are you laughing? I'm laughing because the Husky fans are going to lose their minds over that. Well, they're going to forget about me pretty quickly. (laughs) Um, Look over here. Look over here. Troy Franklin Jr. making first team. Terrence Ferguson, the tight end at Oregon, making first team. Um, Oregon State had four first team selections on offense and defense, including among them Damian Martinez at running back. He's a first teamer. Um, a lot to, to unpack. Jake Levengood, the offensive lineman at Oregon State, is a first-teamer. I've tweeted out all the first-team and second-team selections, plus the Player of the Year awards. Bo Nix, first-team. Michael Penix Jr., second-team. Bucky Irving made the second-team as well. Um, if you want to see those, uh, you can see them. I've tweeted them. You can also find them on the Pac-12's website. But uh, interesting to kind of look at what the coaches thought of the conference. Now, Anna's got the five at five. The five at five. Number one. All right, let's start with uh, the Jaguars. They're saying that Trevor Lawrence's injury is not as bad as they previously had feared. He sprained an ankle versus the Bengals. Uh, I think a lot of fans for Jacksonville were afraid that it was much worse than that. Yeah, it looked pretty bad uh, when it initially happened. And, you know, the game is so quarterback-centric. We all know you have to have a good quarterback, your best quarterback, to have your best chance to win. So Trevor Lawrence, uh, a sprain way better than what the alternatives could have been for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Number two. Such a long pause. Stephen A. Smith suggests that uh, Florida State, undefeated, would have made the college football playoff if it had been coached by Deion Sanders. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> well, I think it was, it's interesting. I had kind of a similar thought today as I looked at the Heisman Trophy finalists, and I looked at them in a different way today than I maybe have before. You know, I do think when you look at the playoff qualifying teams, one team from the Pacific Northwest, one team from the Big Ten Conference in Michigan, one team from the South in Alabama, and one team from Texas. I kind of thought television must be really happy with that. But I also think, like, there's probably some truth to the fact that, like, a personality like Deion Sanders would bring a huge audience. And a lot of viewers that weren't part of the viewing audience would tune in. And when I look at the Heisman Trophy finalists, I had the same kind of thought today. Like, you know, part of the Heisman Trophy giveaway is the ceremony that will be next Saturday at 5 o'clock. And Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, Jaden Daniels, and Marvin Harrison Jr. are are your finalists. 
But then I started looking at, like, not just their colleges, but where they grew up. Penix grew up in Florida. Bo Nix grew up in Alabama. Jane Daniels is a California kid. And Harrison is from Philadelphia. And I thought, gosh, from a television standpoint, you sure have some regional interest there. That kind of works for ESPN. So much of what is happening in college football, pro sports, is driven by television. I don't blame anybody who, who says, hey, you know what? Conspiracy theory, if Deion Sanders is part of this playoff, there's more TV money in it. They can charge more for the commercials. Television would have pushed for it. I don't blame Stephen A. Smith for saying that because I think there's some truth to it. How about you, Anna? Uh, yeah, I mean, Smith was talking about the sizzle that Deion Sanders has brought to college football and specifically to Colorado, and I think that would have made a difference, absolutely. And the first four weeks of the season were evidence. I mean, it was 7 million, 8 million, 9 million people tuning in to see Colorado, and then even when Colorado was getting its brains beat in by, you know, the Pac-12 teams going 1-8 and eight in the conference play, there was still, like you could see, the audience was still kind of hanging around to see if something mm-hmm. was going to happen. Yep. Interesting. Number three. Okay. Um, sticking with college football momentarily, we know Notre Dame is heading to the Sun Bowl to play Oregon State. But did you know that Notre Dame will be doing that because its name was drawn out of a hat? Yeah, we talked about this with Jerry Palm in the opening segment. That's so but, crazy to me. Well, the ACC had a problem. Yes, it did. Because it thought Florida State was getting in the playoff. Yes. And then it thought, okay, because Florida State's in the playoff, Louisville will be playing in a New Year's Six Bowl. And when that didn't happen, there was sort of a domino effect all the way down the bowls. And then Notre Dame had designated there were multiple bowl games. They said, we've been there too recently. We don't want to go back. And they end up in El Paso, you know, because of that. Yep. Fascinating. North Carolina, Miami, and and the Irish were you, the teams yeah. available. Can you imagine if it would have been Mario Cristobal in Miami against Oregon State? <laughs> <laughs> Mario Cristobal, by the way, 12-12 and 12 at Miami since leaving the University of Oregon. He's got to, he needs a quarterback. Mm-hmm. He's got to get in the portal. I know he's got his foot planted in the ground. His cleat planted in the ground, and they're all about physicality. He needs a quarterback right now. He's got to find a quarterback this offseason. Moving on. Number four. Um, you know, Aaron Rodgers is growing on me. He is talking about the diet that he's committed to that is a key factor in his recovery from his Achilles tendon injury. He says he's drinking bone broth every single day. Bone broth. That's all I got to do to look better to you is drink bone broth. And I'll grow on you. He's speaking my language. The broth contains significant amounts of nutrients and collagen, which have been proven to help tendons. He's avoided foods that trigger inflammatory responses like sugar, red meat, and fried foods. Those are my go-tos right there. (laughs) You just named them. I know. Sugar, red meats, fried foods. (laughs) But I'm going to mix some bone broth in now, Anna. How, How am I looking? You're going to balance it yeah. out with some bone broth? I think he's kind of weird. He's not 
I mean, yeah, he is weird, but in this sense, he's very progressive and he understands nutrition. Well, it's a mild, this is a mild thing that he said. This isn't him going into one of those chambers, you know? Yeah, on the spectrum of crazy things that Aaron Rodgers has done and said. This this is is a two. Yeah, yeah. This is a two. But we're all sitting here going, oh, man, he's really had a fast recovery from Achilles. Let's go around the room because I, I, I have a theory on this, too, because as weird as he is, I do find myself super interested in when he comes back and how good he can be. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually pulling for him in that way. Steven, for him or against him? I'm for Aaron Rodgers. Um, I like guys that think differently. So uh, I'm all for Aaron Rodgers. I think he's I think he's interesting and uh, he thinks differently. So good for him. I like the, the he agreed with me but said he likes people who think differently. <laughs> all right, Anna, for Aaron Rodgers or against him? I'm I'm totally for him. Like, you need people like Aaron Rodgers within our culture to kind of push the edges of it, you know? Yeah. And so that we can all go, oh, he's a little weird. Yeah. But I, some I mean, of the stuff he says makes sense. Yeah, I, I think he's researched the weirdness, but I think he uh, he makes me feel normal <laughs> when I look at what he's doing. Drink your bone broth, people. Number five. All right. This is going to be a documentary within the next year on Netflix, no doubt. A YouTuber was sentenced uh, today to six months in federal prison for deliberately crashing his single propeller plane to bolster his social media. Oh, man. Now, I'm talking about him because Trevor Daniel Jacob, 30 years old, is a former Olympic snowboarder. So, like, this is a guy who already did a lot to be famous. Right. But... He was trying to boost his YouTube presence. No, no. By, I, I can't even believe he, d- I hadn't heard about this. He pre-planned a crash. Crashed his own plane. Crashed his own plane. You, There's video of him flying the single engine plane from Lompoc in California to Mammoth Lakes. He claimed the plane's engine had failed half an hour into the flight. The footage captures him opening the side door and leaping out to deploy a parachute just as the plane hurtles downward into a crash below. So, and he posts the video. He posts the video. Prosecutors say that he purposely waited two days to report this <laughs> planned crash to the NTSB, who had advised him to preserve the wreckage, Okay. But he stalled the investigation, saying he didn't know where the plane went down. Instead, he used a helicopter to lift the wreckage out of the forest before dismantling it and disposing of it. All you had to do is go to the comment section of the YouTube video. The viewers outed him and prosecuted him before the prosecutors did. The viewers noted that he was already wearing a parachute at the start of the filming. He's just a really, you know, cautious individual, you know? Yeah, yeah. Most most pilots fly with a parachute you on, know? right? He, uh, That's he, insane. He also made no attempt to glide the aircraft to a safe landing area. And he also took a camera and a selfie stick with him as he jumped out of the plane. Some red flags there for investigators <laughs> in the uh, Central District of California. Now, I think this, is, this part is interesting. Did he deserve prison? Does he deserve yes. a sentence? Yes. Why? Because think of think of nobody got hurt. Oh, mm. 
Are you just doing? You're just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, nobody got hurt. Yeah, you don't Somebody actually has to. believe Go that. Ahead. I'm looking Go. at you because I Go. know Go. you're just saying that for the counterpoint. Oh, he stole my seat. That's what happened. <laughs> you know? <laughs> tell me, tell me why he deserves a sentence. How dangerous is it to ditch a plane that's in flight? I well, mean, you know what? Did it hit anybody? But if he no, planned he it out is... before, Anna, he knew that he wasn't going to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's... Oh, there's two of you now. How does this extend? There's two of you now. What if you want to go out in the middle of the uh, lake and sink your own boat? No? Yeah. Not a good idea? You know? I, but here's the thing. The, the well, pro- and then a rescuer drowns in the process of coming after you. The prosecutors have argued that a sentence was necessary to prevent copycatters, <laughs> to prevent others from... Doing this type oh, of stunt. Is well, that an official term, copycat? They said that. They were quoted in the piece. That's uh, that's appealable, then. Prosecutors argued that a prison sentence is, quote, necessary to prevent others from attempting mm. this type of stunt, end quote. He said he researched the plane route, made sure the crash wouldn't be any near any housing or any trails. He said, mm. I never should have gone forward with it. The, FA, the FAA reinstated his pilot license and but he's going away this guy should not be flying no no and it's interesting because his actual conviction listen to this it it wasn't for the stunt itself it was for destruction and concealment with the intent to obstruct a federal investigation so really what he got busted on was the cover-up not the thing itself but he got what he wanted he got the he got the views on the gram, he got the followers, he got the likes. I, I, I gotta wonder what it is about somebody like this that they need that attention. You know what I mean? It's a statement on society. I mean, we've seen the crazy stunts that people have done to try to get famous. You know, they fake pregnancies, they do all kinds of crazy things. But to, don't you think that, you know, don't you think that? There's it. You could say it's about society, but it is about society. But but not everybody in society is doing this. No, one guy is doing this. But like our our social media driven society and the attention that we give to influencers is affecting this thin stripe of crazy people who will pull off these stunts. Do you think I need their popularity? Do I need to do something wild to get more (laughs) views on my TikTok? And what would that be? I don't know. Let's let's brainstorm this. I, d- let's the, workshop uh, this. How Steven. about the Oregon Duck? The Oregon Duck uh, during the Civil War football game came into the stadium on a on like a zip line from the top of the stadium. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, like, how much further do we need to go here? You know, <laughs> next time it's parachuting in. Yeah. And then how long until the Oregon Duck, knocking on wood here has an accident trying to do one of these outlandish mic drop entrances into the stadium, and the football game has to be delayed because the mascot was trying to get what? so Wanted to get viral? That's what it was about. It was yeah. the same thing. It's not society. It's people. It's the Oregon Duck. I it's, mean, it, I did take video of it and post it on my Instagram I know. story. Everybody did. How many hits did it get? But the, <laughs> yeah. guy, the guy has 4.4 million views on that video. He, he accomplished what he wanted to. Do you think he? Yeah. Do you think down deep? Because he said he was sorry, and people say that when they're getting punished or get about to be sentenced. <laughs> but do you think down deep the guy goes, "Got everything I wanted." Sorry, not sorry. And now they're talking about me on radio. People Magazine wrote about me. CNN wrote about me. Everybody's writing about him now. Six months in prison. Yeah. 
It's worth it. Six months in the joint. I know it's federal prison too, right? Is like, it a ba- is a dangerous prison? That's a little cushier, you know, than you, a county jail or a state prison. Do you right? think he gets a? Uh, do you think he gets some cred from the other prisoners? What are you in for? I crashed a plane. Like, does he get some cred for that, or do they look at him like he's a joke? I don't know. Well, you, you could like, sell it like, oh, I stole the plane and then I crashed it. I need to. Uh, <laughs> I need like a. Uh, I need one of those uh, prison guards to call in again. We've got some prison guards that have called in over the years to tell us their horror stories about what it's like to be in the joint. Where does plane yeah. crasher land on the hierarchy of criminals? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you. I I went to a federal prison in Texas one time to do a story. Yeah. And Stephen, you can take the music down because this is gonna be a long story. Uh, so I uh, <laughs> I'm I was writing about James and Jaquiz Rogers' father. Oh yeah. Okay. People don't know James and Jaquiz Rogers, their father. James Sr. was in prison in Texarkana, Texas. And it was a it's a rough prison. And he was in prison for a narcotics offense that came with a mandatory sentence. Uh, but I went to the prison to write about their dad and you know their ongoing college careers and you know what i eventually found as i met with the father was how proud he was of his kids carrying on what they were supposed to be doing and how sad it was uh, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing outside of prison and then the the only thing he had inside was the guards like giving him updates on Mm. how many yards and catches his kids had and it was kind of a sad story but um james and jaquiz knew i was doing it they gave their blessing for it i went to texas to go to the prison and I park outside the prison and it's just what you imagine when you are driving up to a prison. It's got, you know, the big tall cyclone fences, mm-hmm. guard towers, guard up on the top with a rifle. Um, you know, it looks like a prison mm-hmm. you know, right out of the movies, a barbed wire on the top of the fence. And as you are going through the gates, um, they're asking you for ID. You know, of course I made a, uh, uh, I had reached out and talked to the prison and talked to the warden, said, I'm coming. And they let you through this first set of gates. And when it closes behind you, mm-hmm. the sound that it makes as it clo- the gates are closing behind you, and there's a series of gates, as each of those sounds started to you know, be heard behind me, I became increasingly more anxious and was kind of looking at the guards like, you do remember I'm visiting. Like, you're going to remember me on the way out. And they were like, you know, people say that. Like, you know, don't forget I'm visiting. Don't leave. You know, there's been a terrible mix-up. You know, and all of a sudden, they're, like, not sure you're visiting. There's a riot that goes on. You know, all of a sudden, you're stuck in the prison. But uh, they bring me in, and then they brought me into the warden's office. Hmm. And the warden was exactly like out of the movies, too. I felt like I was watching The Longest Yard, the original version with Burt Reynolds. (laughs) And the warden was in there. There's a big oil painting of the warden in the warden's office wow and you're in texas mm-hmm. and the warden comes in and he's kind of like you know what are you doing here what are, you know asking a lot of questions and so they are finally satisfied that i was just there to talk to james rogers senior and they bring me to a area in the prison where i can sit and talk with him and they of course walk him out and he's delighted to have somebody to talk to about his kids mm-hmm. like you know so we had this long conversation and i uh taped the interview with his dad and i think i even have some of the audio from the uh from the interview but i i just 
I I was struck by not wanting to have um, anything to do with a prison in my life, you know? Yeah. And I was also struck by the fact that, like, I wasn't sure in watching it. Like, I didn't spend a whole bunch of time there. Mm -hmm. And people who have studied the prison system could tell me better. But I wasn't sure in observing it if it was, like, the best place to reform people. If that's what our goal was, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, sure. I think it depends on the crime. Uh, right. I definitely think, you know, within prisons, there needs to be a structure in which people who want to reform can do so. Um, it's not always easy to actually improve yourself in prison to, for example, get an education. And so that, you know, when you come out, you are more of a contributor to society than you were going in. I, I do think there's a lot of people that go to prison and learn a lot of things from other criminals and come out and are just better at being criminals um, right. with the system that we have. So, yeah, I mean, it could, could, can there be improvement? Of course. I, I've, I've spoken to prison officials themselves who agree with that and want more resources to be able to improve what is actually happening behind the walls. Uh, I, uh, in, you know, I, I recorded like 20 minutes of my conversation with you know, James Rogers Sr., and, you know, I don't even know where to begin or even to, to know if this is going to be a redeeming part of it, but he was talking about his kids here. You said, okay, there's nine kids in your family. Your brother, did he also go to prison for that same? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, how long did he serve? He served, uh, he got out of March last year. Okay. So. At the nine kids, how many of you served time? At the nine kids, uh, yeah. Our uh, three of us. Three of you. Yeah. All, all the boys. All the boys. Is there how many girls were there? Three. Three girls, three yeah. boys. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, what are your other siblings? What are their names, and what do they do? Um, Bobby, he work at um, in Pasadena at the Exxon Company. He making thirty dollars an hour being a being a supervisor. Okay. And Lee, he work at um, he work at all field. He making eighteen dollars an hour. Okay. And and Lewis, he he driving trucks now. Yeah, those are the other three boys. They doing, doing good. How about the girls? Where the girls, they uh, my sister, she was a supervisor at the hospital okay. over the food, and my other sister, she worked at a group home, and, and my other sister worked at the hospital. Okay, so you know, you got the families out there. You have good support. Good support. In there around. Um, what would you say to the boys now? I mean, if if they're listening to this, what what do you say to James and Jacquez? Well, it been um, I never won't want to do this again. It's just I learned I learned by my mistakes this, and that what got me in here. And, and I, I'm gonna stay focused and do the right thing and keep my head up. And yeah. when's the last time you had a really good laugh in in prison here? Last time you laughed so hard? Well, last time Jacquez and my sister come over, we kicked it. Yeah. We kicked it. My brothers know when, we, when they come up here, we laugh, kick it all the time. I'm telling they they keep me. In. They keep you in. Keep me focused. When's the last time you cried? Mm. Well, that's been a long time. Yeah. yeah, it's been a long time. Why? Can you not allow yourself to do that in here? Well, sometimes you know, after I, when I first got to 25 years, I cried. You know, but sometimes you just got to go along, stay focused, and going on with it. You can't let that. You can't let that get you down because you got you got to live your life. So, mm -hmm. now when you get out of here, you're still gonna have a piece of your life in front of you. 
Have you thought at all, really, about what you want to do? And you said you don't want to come back here. Well, I got one thing. I got to get main thing. I got to stay, get my stuff together, and get me a job, and, and stay focused, and, and do what I got to do. And that's the main thing. I can't be playing around because it's easy to come back here. Very easy. Did you? Um, someone mentioned that you had a wallet that had Oregon State on it. Did you make a wallet like that? Y yes, sir. I, I I paid somebody. I sent Tasha a wallet. You did. Uh, yeah, I sent. Yeah. So, did you make the wallet in here, or? Yeah, uh, one of my craft shop workers, me and John Grant, he loved my boys, and yeah. he, and I, I paid him. He, he, he made it. a wallet. He made. Yeah. How do you pay someone in here? How do you? How does that work? Commissary. Commissary. Yeah, commissary. Yeah. So in the commissary, they can buy cigarettes. No, no. You know? no, no what no, is no. that? How is that? What is that? What soups, chips, soda water, chili. So, all in, all so basically, in. you're paying him with this stuff yeah. so that he can make a wallet, and and you sent the wallet to your. To their mom. The mom. Yeah, that was nice. Okay. Yeah. There he is in prison. There's about a 20 minute interview. I should, Jeez. I should put that somewhere. It it was profound, and think about 25 years. And his offense was, um, he had on multiple occasions been convicted of uh, crimes involving narcotics. And so his crime was a mandatory 25-year sentence that he has to serve. And I will do a follow-up on James Rogers Sr. when he is out. That interview was from 2009. Leave it here. During the commercial break, talking to Anna a little bit about, you know, the gravity of a 25-year sentence. And, you know, James Rogers Sr. was only seven years into... Uh, what would be a 25-year uh, sentence in 2009. And so, uh, you know, he's still got a couple of years. He's got three years remaining on that sentence. And I'm eager to catch up with him, see uh, how how it goes for him as he uh, leaves that Texas prison. I did talk to James and Jaquiz after meeting with their dad. They thanked me for going out to talk with him. And I do think it was unique that they were both so supportive of that because I think there were a lot of kids that would probably be embarrassed all those years ago. They were playing in a bowl game that year against BYU and their dad was in prison. And I kind of said, you know, I, I would like to tell this story. And when he was arrested, he was 41. And he told me that when the deputies came to knock on the door, he had been uh, arrested and convicted for distributing crack coat cane in a school zone so it came with an additional penalty and it was not his first offense and so it was a mandatory 25-year sentence um and i asked him what what were the last words you uttered as a free man and james rogers senior said that the last words that he uttered as a free man as he looked through the peephole and saw a line of men with their weapons drawn and Deputy was shouting about a warrant for distributing crack cocaine, and he said, I'm not going to run. Put the guns down. I've got children in here. That was the last of what he said as a free man. Uh, people have called in. Bill's in Gresham. Bill's called in. Bill, what's on your mind? Yeah, John, uh, kind of an unusual call. First of all, I've listened to your show for three years. My wife and I moved out here 10 years ago, and I really appreciate Ball Face Truth and uh, just kind of hit me. I, I did a, a prison bit myself, and uh, 
I was in SCI Fort Worth, so it kind of hit me uh, right upside the head when I heard you talking about visiting the Rogers boys' father there, and um, just uh, just in, in your conversation with Anna and you guys discussing, you know, our, like you said, the, you know, the gravity of the place does does its work. You know, I mean, it's uh, you know, there's there's a lot going on with that, but uh, I just want to applaud you first of all for for going out there. You know, putting yourself in that situation to, to go there and, to, you know, as a journalist, that's that's got to be, you know, kind of pushing all in to, to put yourself in a situation like that. But, um, you know, it, uh, it, was, it was, you know, another lifetime for me. Uh, you know, I can I just say that, you know, I'm, I'm a better man for it today. I was 20 when I went in. I did four years, uh, got out, got squared away. Uh, you know, I, I actually got an associate's degree while I was in there. You know, they're connected to Tarrant County Junior College. I got an associate's degree and got out, got myself a decent job. And it's been almost 30 years. I got out in May 8th of 92. And, uh, you know, I've been, been uh, you know, clean, clean nose ever since. You know, I got married uh, back in uh, 2000. My wife and I have had, you know, made a good life. We, we moved out here. And, uh, but, you know, I'll say this, though, too, that, you know, when you guys were questioning, do these places work, do we need them? We absolutely do. You know, there's folks in there that I was in there with that I can tell you with certainty that, you know, they should be in there. Right. You know, there's certainly people that, you know, like I went in, I was 20, and I had never done anything to, you know, run afoul of the law, but when I did, I really did, you know, I mean, uh, uh, it wasn't drug-related, mine wasn't, but, uh, you know, it was, it was federal bank robbery, and uh, mm. so I, 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 uh, and I, and I think I'll say this, I did four years, and, you know, some of these guys that are serving drug sentences, you know, I mean, he's serving a 25-year sentence, I'm sure his was aggravated, because I think you mentioned he it was a school zone or something like that, yeah. but, uh, yeah. So, you know, there's just a lot there to unpack. But, again, I, I just, you know, when I heard you talking about the subject, it, uh, it, it, I just felt compelled to call in. And I appreciate again, that. I, yeah, this is just, you know, you know, there's a lot of these guys, too, man. There's a lot of guys as, as sports fans and people that work around, you know, college sports, college athletics. There's a lot of guys that, that maybe have similar stories. You know, their families um, – they have either, or you know, fathers or uncles or what, brothers, whatever that that, that do time for making wrong choices. And um, you know, again, I think the best we can do is try to try to support them when they when they do that and let them let them serve their time. Let them, you know, do what they can to, to clean their themselves up and then move on from there. But uh, again, I just uh, uh, wanted to call in and, and say I uh, appreciate you for for talking about this, for, for playing that interview with, with sure. the Rogers uh, boy's dad. And, and, uh, thanks for the great show, man. I appreciate that. I, I have questions for you cause you've been in there and we don't need to know, you know, your name and, and who you are now, but take us back to, you know, it was, it was federal bank robbery that yep. landed you ultimately in there. What, were, were there were there drugs involved? Were you robbing the bank, but because of drugs, or give us you know why did you walk into a bank? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I wasn't a, a drug addict. That You know, the, the irony of it is, is um, anybody who remembers kind of that period, um, you know, this is the war on drugs kind of got going, and, and um, they had actually changed federal sentencing guidelines to reflect that. You know, they were, they were uh, being tougher on people with drug offenses, with, with folks like uh, the, the Rogers uh, boy's dad. Uh, and then, you know, their, their, their thinking was that a lot of these other crimes were drug-motivated. And mine really wasn't. It was just, you know, I made a, just a lot of really bad choices. I had, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, without, I, I don't like doing the, the blame game. You know, I, uh, I was in foster care and, you know, uh, uh, my mom was a single mother and she did the best she could, but there were times where she couldn't do, you know, for me and for my brothers and sisters. And, and, uh, you know, we ended up in foster care and, but as a result of me, again, making a series of bad choices, you know, I, I walked into a, a bank one day and, and it was not armed robbery. I did what's called strong arm robbery and uh, just used a demand note. And that was part of the reason why I got a, a reduced sentence. Uh, you know, there was nobody was hurt. Uh, nobody was physically hurt. Uh, how did but, you get uh, how did you get caught? Well, um, you know, it was it was a crime spree. I robbed 13 banks. Um, I started out in Ohio and and robbed four in Ohio, and then made my way to California. And I robbed uh, uh, five down in the in the Cal or uh, Southern Southern Cal, and then four in in uh, in Sacramento area. And I was basically ready ready to stop. Uh, I mean, uh, after the first one, you know, it, it's real easy to justify, you know, well, I'm already, I'm already going to go, I'm in trouble now. And it just was this, this string of, of, you know, just again, just horrible choices. And I, over eight months I did this. And then when I, when I was in California though, there was a girl that I'd started seeing and it was after I had already started. So I, I was trying not to get really involved with this girl, knowing that it was just going to be really hurtful for her. But we ended up uh, staying together. She stayed with me for a couple of years after I got in. But her her, uh, her uncle was a detective sergeant on the Columbus, Ohio, police force. And through a couple phone calls, I talked to him. And, you know, he, he just, you know, basically talked me into surrendering. And, um uh, that that's how it went. I mean, I, I eventually did surrender, but uh, it was. Uh, and again, they were they were lenient on me because I, I came, you know, I was I was forthright and told them right. everything I'd done, and and uh, you know, basically they said you can do it like this, or we can, you know, do it piecemeal. And when you get out, you're going to have to be looking over your shoulder all the time. So I was honest, and they they gave me what I felt like was a very lenient sentence. I only sure. served fifty. Well, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you calling, sharing your story. Um, I can tell you, you could probably go sell to sell. Yeah, you could go sell to sell in a place like that. And I love that you also added in that there are people that are in prison that belong in prison that need to stay in prison. But I also like to hear stories of people who uh, had nonviolent crimes and, you know, came out and are success stories. I think we need those success stories. It, prison 
you know, shouldn't be a place where we just put people to hide them and wait till their uh, their sentence expires. It should be about rehabilitation. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Pac-12 coming out with their all-conference team. Bo Nix in front of Michael Penix Jr. A lot of controversy, a lot of upset Husky fans. Seeing Bo Nix in front of Michael Penix Jr., first team versus second team. Offensive player of the year is Bo Nix. I think that coaches in the Pac-12, and the coaches vote, not media, can't vote for your own team. Ballots were due on Monday, so it did include the possibility of the coaches watching the championship game. But I have to think that the coaches looked at the performance that those players had against their own team. And it's possible that there were some coaches in the Pac-12, including Kelly Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State, who faced both Michael Penix and Bo Nix and thought Bo Nix just killed him, and Penix didn't. And, you know, for that reason, Bo Nix slips in front of Penix and becomes the Pac-12's Offensive Player of the Year. Do you think the Heisman vote is going to reflect that? I don't. I think the Heisman voters probably saw Friday's Pac-12 championship game, and it might be all they saw all season long of Bo Nix or Michael Penix. And they're going to go, Penix is the better player. I think Penix is going to finish in front of Bo Nix in the Heisman balloting. Steven, you? I agree with you, and I, and I think that Bo Nix is the right choice to be the Pac-12 Player of the Year. So, I, you know, in, in saying that, I kind of think Bo Nix deserves to be higher up in the Heisman than Michael Penix. If you're going best player, I think Bo Nix had a better season than Michael Penix, but I do think that there's the voters will vote a lot more off of just the one game in the Pac-12 championship game where Bo Nix really didn't play like the Bo Nix we had saw the first 12 games of the season. I mean, it was the first 12 games of the of the season for Bo Nix was he was elite. He was the best quarterback. He was maybe the best player in all of the nation. And then that final game in Vegas, he turned back to Auburn, Bo Nix. And it was the first time we had seen that. So I think a lot of voters, especially in the South, are going to say, look, this is the Michael, or this is the Bo Nix that we know. This is the Bo Nix that we saw when he was down at Auburn. I'm not going to vote for this guy over Michael Penix, who got the dub. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Heisman. I think probably Jaden Daniels at this point, just you, the way it kind of unfolded. Do you but, agree that Bo Nix should have won the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year over Michael Penix? I don't. I think Penix was the better player, and I think so much of what Washington was was Michael Penix. But there were coaches in nine games, they play nine conference games, who saw those guys face-to-face, and I had one of the coaches tell me, and I'll just read the text, from one of the Pac-12 coaches, I asked, you know, essentially what, you know, what you, they were looking at. And the response I got was this. Um, from what I have heard, the biggest controversy is that one Heisman finalist beat out another Heisman finalist. So they're basically saying, hey, you know, this, this, is, uh, this is like splitting hairs. But the coaches are saying... Coaches look at this differently than the public. I am sure coaches are more likely to vote for a guy who had a big game against them versus someone they didn't play. I don't think coaches are as prone to relying on stats as the rest of you. How about that? I mean, that makes it makes sense because uh, I, you know, I said Bo Nix should be the offensive player of the year based on the stats. Like, but Bo Nix was better than Michael <laughs> Penix. So, yeah. and I'm, you know, I'm not a football coach, so I, I can under, fully understand. 
uh, where that's coming from. I just think watching the games this season, Michael Penix, there was a stretch there where you know Washington didn't score a touchdown in a game against Arizona State. There was a stretch mm-hmm. where the offense wasn't very good, whether it's because he was sick or he was hurt, whatever it was. There was like you know a three or four game stretch where we're thinking, well, Washington is they're going to lose because the offense isn't very good. Where there was never that yeah. stretch with Oregon, and I know the one game that it all matters is the Pac-12 title game, and Bo Nix didn't show up. He hits the ref in the first drive, zero for three, three and out, first two drives of the se- of the game. But man, if you look at the totality, I think Bo Nix should get it over Michael Penix. But I'm not mad about it if Michael Penix were to win it. I think Penix finishes in front of Nix for the Heisman. You. I agree. Yeah, I, I think the voters will vote Penix because of the Pac-12 championship. Will Jaden Daniels win it? 100%. Yeah, 100%. And uh, me, I was a guy who had a Bo Nix Heisman ticket. I bet him after Oregon lost to Washington. It was about 24 and a half to one. I was feeling wow. really good about it. Uh, so I was a little disappointed in uh, Auburn Bo Nix that showed up in that final game. You were buying some value there. I did. James is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. James, what's up, man? Hey, John. Hey, uh, Nothing makes me happier than hearing about Washington fans complaining about this scenario when they're in the playoffs. I mean, come on, simmer down a little bit. But uh, so I agree. I thought, I don't know if Penix got hurt in the Oregon game, but I thought ever since then he looked kind of pedestrian. Um, they squeaked out that game against Arizona State. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it could go either way. I'm not going to be super offended either way. But, hey. Um, on that, I appreciate your uh, playback of the interview with uh, the Rogers' dad. And uh, my brother actually uh, spent some time in prison and is still living on the street up there in your neck of the woods in Portland um, due to heroin addiction. And uh, when you said earlier, it kind of chimed in my brain about you didn't think that that whole system that you saw was like something that could like really rehabilitate somebody, and you're 100% right, because it actually it makes some people maybe be able to go through that and like come out better on the other side, but it makes a large majority of people actually come out worse on the other side. Um, uh, he got into like some white supremacist type stuff and came out, um, with, uh, um, more knowledge about mess and how to like deal that whole process and sex trafficking and all that. And it, it just, um, it's not, not a place that you put somebody who already has an issue like that and um i just wanted to say that um being addicted to something is not a crime and you know what he got addicted by pfizer and moderna or whoever Mm. prescribed him pain pills when he broke his foot and it turned into a heroin addiction and i just want to say that um i feel for anybody whose family is in that situation and i appreciate you playing that and uh thanks for that yeah, you bet. And I think, you know, the caller raises a great point. Like, James and Jaquiz Rogers, I can just remember having that conversation with him. It was a hard conversation because, you know, I I think Jaquiz was the one who told me. And Jaquiz came on the show every week for, like, weeks and weeks and weeks and for, like, two years. And Jaquiz came on this show, and we played a fun game called Quiz Quiz. And that was cool and everything. But then, you know, he said one day off air – you know, he was talking about his parents, and he said, my dad is in federal prison. And I was like, what? And then he told me the story, and then I later circled back to him, and I said, I would love to tell this story. I think it's an important story. And, and part of it was how much the families of those who are incarcerated also suffer 
And it's not just losing a father or a brother or a son or a mother to incarceration. It was so much bigger than that. And the impact to families who had to relocate and didn't have income and struggled and suffered. And the Rogers brothers are a success story. James and Jaquiz, in spite of what happened with their dad, went on to college, graduated college. Jaquiz played in the NFL. James, you know, has gone on and done great things. Those kids are thriving. And it's an amazing story, really, when you think about it. I never know where this show's going to go. And I appreciate that you bear with me when it takes a turn because I thought it was an important turn that we took, you know, in the five o'clock hour today. I hope you grab a podcast and you share it with your friends and family. Um, and I encourage you to get back here tomorrow, three o'clock to six o'clock, as we have another episode of the Bald Face Truth.